0: VOCM OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed
1: on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host... Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Friday, January the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing this. Come on with an edition of the show. So, if you are in the St. John's Metro region and you're interested in calling the program, today is the day. It's 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86... Twenty-six. Well, it's just here in the Western world where there's any association of Friday the 13th with any sort of unlucky day and superstitions associated with it. I'm not really that superstitious, maybe just a little tiny bit. But Friday the 13th really doesn't hit me in the feels at all. The origin is also very murky. So there might be some association with Norse myth, 12 gods arriving at a dinner party on Valhalla. Then, of course, the god known as a trickster god, Loki, not invited. Arrived as the 13th guest, ra—pardon uh, me arranged for Hodor to shoot Balder with the old mistletoe-tipped arrow, and then the earth mourned as it was a bad, unlucky day, so maybe that's part of it. Many people in this part of the world will point to The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Of course, 13 individuals present in the upper room on the 13th of the Nissan Maundy Thursday, the day before the death on Good Friday. So, Friday the 13th, ugh. Let's keep going stormy weather coming so chilly out there today about minus 13 here in town when I drove in this morning so if you're interested in doing some snow based activities get out there today in this neck of the woods because there's some warmer weather with some rain coming so maybe some of the little tiny bit of snow we have might be going by the wayside and I still want to hear from someone who's been on the slopes out of marble what that looks like how it's feeling out there but for folks on the west coast on the southwest coast could be some pretty dirty weather coming your way. So whether it be the northern peninsula corner brook, a mixed bag of freezing rain, snow, rain, then down in Port of Basque, mostly rain. Some people may see in excess of 100 millimeters of rain and with the ground frozen, of course, makes the potential for water collection and flooding even more so, so bat down the hatches and when we have information to bring your way, of course, we'll do exactly that. Stick with the ice for a second. I mean, I know it's early in the season, and I don't know how closely people follow along with curling, but I do keep an eye on the Guju rink, you know, and they're at the Grand Slam of curling out in Camrose, Alberta. They advanced again with a 6 and 5-1 win over a Scottish rink, uh, skipped by Ross White. I want to bring it up because I think we kind of take for granted the fact that one of the very best players in the world is from here. Maybe a couple of the very best players in the world are from here. I mean, just think about the accomplishments that those guys have had. The Brad Guzhu rink. And no, they haven't lost any momentum with losing Galant to bringing in EJ Herndon. So they look good again this year. World junior champion, world champion, gold medalist, four-time Briar winner. I mean, it's just remarkable what they've achieved. And some of the best players, not only now, but maybe ever from here. Pretty cool. All right. So we know the world of media has changed and where you get your news is ever evolving and the so-called traditional outlets have tried to adjust with the times, whether that be in this industry, radio, and of course in the newspaper business. It was today, on uh, this date, in history in 1785, so 238 years ago, the Times of London was first published as a broadsheet. So it was first published under the title The Daily Universal Register. They adopted the current name on the 1st of January of 1788. See it now published as not the Times of London, but the Times and the Sunday Times, still pretty solid circulation in and around 360000 for the hard copy, over 300000 in the digital format. But the Times of London, still in production. And this is a good one. It goes with the simplicity. You know, we talk about all the advancements in technology and the games that come with it. And, you know, the first-person shooter games, the virtual reality. But you look around, it's still some of the most fundamental simplistic toys still in some corners rule the roost it was the day in 1957 that the Wamo company uh, first produced the frisbee and i mean the frisbee indoors and it does provide hours of a lot of fun and you know it's gone from just flicking it around in the park to frisbee golf or froth or whatever they refer to that particular game as of which there's one just across the road from the confederation building but Wamo, first frisbee 1957 Okay, I've organized some time coming up just after the 10 o'clock news with a Clarenceville lawyer named Greg French who's been on this program in the past talking about Crown lands. And we still do welcome your individual or family story regarding the unbeknownst to you, you go to downsize or sell or whatever you're doing and you find out that a home is built on Crown land. Now, there's lots of reasons. I threw this one out there yesterday and I don't know if it has any legal standing, but i will ask Mr. French about it. You know, you're paying municipal taxes, The property is assessed, certainly outside the city, the property is assessed by the assessment agency of the province, so provincially sanctioned. Then municipal councils will assign a mill rate, and consequently we come up with your property tax. If you've been paying property tax all the way through, at some point I don't even understand how the Crown has legal uh, right to your land. So Mr. French says, and he's a legal expert in this field, He says the proposed areas of consideration, and we don't know what might be added to the pile as the virtual consultations continue, and if you've put something in on Engage NL, we'd be happy to hear from you this morning, but Mr. French doesn't think that the proposed areas to be considered, to be looked at, potential amendments to the Lands Act, based on what Minister Bragg has said, he doesn't think it's going to make a whole lot of positive difference. I'll leave it to Mr. French to elaborate on his thoughts. There's a new story out there today for you to get a warm-up. And if you, even if it's a very specific case, which I don't know if Mr. French is going to be able to deal with every single individual case, but this story really got some traction when the Diamond family and Catalina brought their story to the media. Mr. French actually represents the Diamond, so I guess we'll stay away from that one in specific form. But what would be alternative solutions, alternative options to make sure that the Crown Land's issue does not end up where it is today? Costly, time time consuming, legal wrangling to try to deal with the Crown. And again I'll put this out there. If the Crown is being as strict, the government is being as strict as they are with individual circumstances regarding Crown Lands, you can only hope they're the same way when it comes to any industrial applications for the Millions of hectares of crown land being considered, for instance, for hydrogen and wind projects. Anyway, if you want to take it on? Let's go. Right, we also have some time coming up with the Minister uh, of Housing, in particular, John Abbott. He had a recent tour up in Labrador, Nain, Hopedale, and Nazi, they've got a different approach to housing. But there was also a visit from the federal housing advocate, a lady named Ul, like Rejah Ul. And they have, we'll get m- the Minister to paint a very clear picture just about how. Terrible the circumstances there are in that part of the province. In addition, just like we said with Mr. French, you pose questions through me, I'll try to put them to Greg French and Crown Lands. Same thing when it comes to Minister Abbott. I, of course, have plenty of thoughts about where to go with Minister Abbott, but if you have any housing-related matters, you know, look, like we spoke with Ophelia Ravencroft earlier this week, a city councillor here in the city of St. John's, about some of the most vulnerable in the, in the society and what happens when it's cold like it has been and the storms that we were anticipating earlier this week that really didn't amount to much, but... Housing, basically, is a provincial responsibility. So, again, if you have any thoughts on the matter, please bring them forward before the minister comes on, which I think is around 9.30, is it, Dave? I don't, can't remember. Okay. On that front, there is also an emailer sent along some thoughts regarding part of a news story this morning about the Gathering Place. The numbers of people turning to the Gathering Place and other not-for-profits and other shelters like it have grown exponentially over the years. So part of the story said that they're turning away at least one person per night. And the emailer was concerned saying, you know, can't they just even come in and sleep on the floor? Certainly better than being out in the cold, or maybe committing a petty crime to find themselves in the lockup, or walking over to an emergency room to be in out of the elements. It's a good question. I don't really know why it's happening. Now, the folks at the gathering place obviously have their heart in the right place. Obviously trying to do everything they can to accommodate people coming to their doors so is it a safety concern is it a staffing ratio concern i don't know but we will indeed see if there's a bit more we can understand on that front as to how that is working and let's go all right this is a bit of a towny issue but it may indeed rear its bright ugly head in other parts of the province and this regarding the story down at the outer battery about the unbelievably bright security lights installed by one of the residents So Mayor Danny Breen spoke to it yesterday, and he said to correct some of the narrative that he's heard in the media and on social media that there might indeed be an easy fix available under the current bylaws. Now, the piece of legislation that governs the city, the City of St. John's Act, is antiquated and maybe needs some modernization. But basically, the mayor said that the city council can't or won't, at least they won't, because they can't, they say, deal with it even under Section 377 talking about public nuisance measures. Okay, so forgive me if I'm wrong, But isn't it one of Council Key's key roles is to be able to adjust on the fly, to be nimble, to understand? They may indeed understand and hear the complaints coming from folks in the area. And again, if you've never seen it, it is extraordinary. So there's some criminal charges pending. There may indeed be a lawsuit in the offing. But that seems like an awful long row to hoe if you are one of the residents that has been telling us that they're negatively impacted, whether it be about their sleep or otherwise. So it's a bit of an odd one that there's the inability to deal with that particular issue as opposed to think that at this stage, even with charges laid, media attention, that it would boil down to neighbors having to make this type of negotiation, find a compromise, find a solution on their own. But anyway, that's pretty local stuff, but pretty towny stuff at this moment anyway. All right. And sticking with with homes and what have you. So yesterday, the price of uh, furnace oil, home heating oils, went up almost two cents. And then overnight, boom, 20 cents a liter up furnace oil. So about 22 cents in the last two days. Again, and I think Boyd on Twitter, I'll leave his surname out of it. I don't know if he wants that kind of attention, but... You know, when we were told that we'd have much more elaborate explanations coming from the Public Utilities Board about how they arrive at this price, whether it be for diesel or gasoline or home heating fuels, stove oils included, propane. But not really. Basically, the news release says the same stuff it always says. Due to recent commodity market developments, pointing to the fact that New York Harbour Jet makes up 75% of the winter blended benchmark price for furnace heating oil, and so consequently, we saw this spike. So it comes with a bunch of different angles for conversation. I think some, you'll hear some of the ads here on our station from the Conservative Party talking about the tripling of the carbon tax on home heating fuels, which of course is a little bit misleading. The first increase in the carbon tax comes in April. The tripling happens over the course of like seven or eight years. But it's a, it's a, it's a conversation. We can absolutely have it. Even before all this became part of it. You know, there's long been talk about the fact that so many people are really making some very severe decisions about how they spend their money. Food, telecom, insurance, groceries, and yes, heating their home, and whether or not inside of a necessity of life in a northern country, a tax on home heating fuels is appropriate. So if that's any of those angles or another one you'd like to bring to it, we can do it. Okay, very quickly. So yesterday we spoke of the fact that the minister of transport, Omar Alagabra, I struggle with that name mightily. Anyway, it's Al Gabra. Okay. Nothing really earth shattering, you know. It is important for the minister responsible to be on top of it, to try to avoid what we saw over the holiday season with the snags in the air and on the rails. So not much to report there. But... The accountability piece regarding airlines, airport authorities, and, yes, the federal government, has got to get some solutions associated with how we're going to make sure that this kind of stuff isn't as rampant as it was over the holidays. I know there's a flood of travelers, and, yes, there's some weather to consider, but we can talk about it. On that front... It looks like there's, the Stephenville Airport is back in the news again. Now, for some of you, you roll your eyes mightily at this story because it has been 16 months since Carl Diamond announced his intentions to take over the airport and the $500 million worth of investment uh, manufacturing these massive cargo drones and all the rest of the stuff that we've heard. So I get that there's still a lot of skepticism, whether it be about some of the stories that people have read about the physical footprint of the diamond group of companies and or financial considerations that people have been talking about. The city council, pardon me, the town council out in Stephenville did approve another $50,000 to go to the airport authority. One councillor, Lenny Tiller, voted against it again. We've actually spoken to Councillor Tiller on the show, and he's welcome back here this morning if he's so inclined. But some of the members of the council that voted in favor of this $50,000, they made a direct correlation between the airport being available and health care. Very specific uh, stories surrounding the need for air ambulance. So that's real, and it's hard to dismiss that. One of the counselors went down to say, I know it's $50,000, and to paraphrase, that's a lot of money, but what's the price you could put on a human life and an air ambulance access for the people living in and around Stephenville? Okay. So there is Stephenville money that has been on the line, no provincial money. In fact, the province who had been backstopping the line of credit said that they're not going to do it any longer, regardless of the circumstances at the Stephenville airport. So with none of the big pot of money from the province going into continuing operations, keeping the airport in, quote-unquote, warm idle, I get the skepticism, but I'm not really sure where the downside is and just letting it play out. It either happens or it doesn't. So I would imagine Stephenville's uh, town council, this is probably the last time, or maybe certainly the second to last time, that they're going to pump more money into the Stephenville airport, which the Diamond Group still doesn't actually own, even though there's been a rebranding. So until there's a big ask of the province or anybody else, having it play out, you know, whether it be dealing with some insolvency proceedings stemming back to or dating back to 2005, I don't know. But unless there's some sort of demand on the pocketbooks of the entire province I don't know letting it play out doesn't seem like an awful idea but if you want to take it on especially if you're in the area please do and if you're in the area and still think that maybe some of the conversations surrounding wind projects and the 31 proposals and the millions of hectares of land and yes green hydrogen and the access to the port of Stephenville regardless of what side you're on we can take that on as well how we doing on the phone Dave we got to get her going here today Harry a couple of quickies so it's almost unavoidable to steer away from talking about healthcare because it's just such a massive concern for this province from right around the country. So whether it be the 136,000 people without access to a family doctor, whether it be about recruiting efforts in India for nurses and doctors from Ireland, and all the considerations that have been bandied about there, here's what you think is probably going to be more and more of the conversation as people get more and more stressed out with the lack of services. And in the province of Ontario, and they won't be alone on this front, the province of Ontario is setting the stage for more and more surgeries to happen in for-profit facilities. Now, Premier Ford doesn't like the word private, apparently, because people will be able to use what is the equivalent of their MCP card to pay for the procedures. But these independent facilities, operated by the private sector for profit, they actually get funding from the uh, OHIP, which is the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, So they're going to expand the types of surgeries available there and do more and more surgeries in what they call the independent health facility, which as much as Premier 4 doesn't like the TAG, it's private, private for profit. Now, where the solutions or the alternative options lie and they try to whittle away at the wait lists... I don't know what the answer is to that, but that's been the concern in many corners. Now, some people will applaud it and say, if we can take people out of the queue who can afford to pay for their own MRI or their own cataract surgery or whatever it is, then that's a good thing. But it does indeed become part of the conversation, as people say, the slippery slope business. There's lots of complexities and potential pitfalls for offering more and more private services inside healthcare, and now there's already plenty of private in the country. As much as we like to turn a blind eye to it and pretend that it's not, it's all universal, there are private offerings. And some of them are nice compliments to the system. But when you get into the world of surgeries, you know, how do you protect the public system from the private sector poaching surgeons? It's a fair question. Even when we talk about clinics, you know, would it be the eventuality that these doctors are not obliged to take on every single patient that presents themselves? So those with the most complex, complicated health care needs would be in the public system, much more fundamental procedures, much more fundamental doctor visits in the private sector. I don't know how much we accomplish, how much further we get ahead, how much we're able to whittle away at wait lists, how much we're able to increase the number of positive healthcare outcomes, if that indeed becomes more and more part of the healthcare conversation. But you know it's going to be getting a bit more traction because it's been a nationwide headline-grabbing circumstance every single day for quite a long time here now. So that's what's happening there. And in healthcare, oh, shocker, Eastern Health is being forced to take legal action against a couple of those Portuguese trawlers and their owners that dropped anchor here early, or pardon me, in 2021 with a bunch of active cases of COVID on board. Okay. <laughs> you know, this was always going to be the case. They weren't going to pay the bill. And so here it is. There's a couple of million dollars outstanding. Here's some circumstances surrounding adding up that monies. So there was one person aboard one of the trawlers called the Santa Cristina spent 128 days in hospital medical costs topping $615,000. Another person was in, another five crew members, their medical services tapped $414,000. Another person stayed for 52 days in the hospital, price tag around a quarter of a million dollars. Another person, not diagnosed with COVID but with tuberculosis, spent about a month in the hospital here, medical fees approaching $140,000. So I don't think anyone should be too shocked that these groups or these trawlers and their, I'm not going to get into trying to pronounce that name, but they didn't pay their bill. What do you know? Anyway, a couple of quickies here. How we doing, Dave? One more check in with you before I bang off one more. Okay, so we talk about cost of living uh, issues up and down the line. And one of the ones that becomes quite frustrating when you look at the landscape out there for your telecom services. You know, it's a competition issue. The big three rule the roost. Even some of the budget offerings are owned by the big three. Tell us, Rogers and Bell. So now with the pending purchase of Shaw by Rogers, Further going to complicate it. Now, the comp- Competition Bureau said that one of the standalones is a small Quebec corporation that would keep the competitive landscape manageable, which, from the outside looking in, looks nonsensical to me. But anyway. Here's some comparisons. This person says he's a snowbird. He gets his service in Mexico from Telcel. It costs 200 pesos, which is about $14 a month Canadian, for the exact same thing. He gets three gigs of data. He can call Mexico, Canada, and the United States. So he begs the question, why is Canada so expensive? When there's annual reports done, pricing across 50 countries, this is done twice a year, we are amongst the league leaders every time in the amount we pay for telecom. So, the cost per gigabyte is seven times more expensive than it is aus- in Australia, 25 times more expensive than in Ireland and France, and a thousand times more expensive than in Finland. So, you know, I know there's a geographical concern with the amount of infrastructure required. Here's an example. You can scroll Instagram for five minutes in France. It costs about half a cent. It'll cost 20 cents in Canada. Download a half-hour show from YouTube. cost costs 8 cents in Ireland over a dollar in Canada. Download an entire season from Netflix. could cost about a odd in Australia over 10 bucks in Canada so the competition is obviously part of it when any one of the small players get access to some broadband they get priced out because it's just pretty fundamental stuff the big three hold three big hammers you want to take it on let's go we're on twitter for vocm open line follow us there our email address is openon at vocm.com when we come back let's have a great show that only can happen when you call like craig who's in the queue to talk about vehicle recalls picking up on a conversation we had yesterday don't go away welcome back to the show let's go line number two good morning craig you're on the air
2: good morning sir how are you
1: very well thanks how about you
2: Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, i think like to. Um, i like uh, uh, comment a little about a little bit about what you were uh, saying yesterday about. Uh, I had a guy call in about he brought his vehicle in for a safety recall, and um, you had said that um, uh, you had said that he could go pick up the vehicle and continue driving it. Um, that type of thing, and then you contradict yourself and said that um, people are driving their vehicles that are not safe on the road because you see it every day. Well,
1: But that's not exactly they what they I said, it. though. In fairness, what I said was, if it was my vehicle, I would take it, bring it to another garage, get an independent inspection to find out exactly why the dealer is willing to condemn it and whether or not it could be saved.
2: Okay, so going back, going back probably about 10 years ago, um, Honda came out with a recall on CRVs for rusted-out frames, and they
3: were—if
2: it was brought into the dealership and and the dealer said that it was not safe to be on the road, you were not allowed to drive that vehicle. You were not; it would not be released from from the dealership, and they would offer you a buyback on it because it was not safe to be on the road. So what happens there, Patty, is that if it's not safe to be on the road, there is no insurance. Your insurance company will not cover you for that vehicle if it's condemned unsafe at the dealership.
1: So what you're saying is that you have zero recourse. You cannot have someone else who's an independent certified uh, garage to do an inspection to give you a better understanding of exactly why you're being told one thing or another and whether or not there's any sort of uh, solution that can be found. It's just dead. That's it. It's over. The dealer says your vehicle is gone. They'll offer you whatever they want, and that's the end of the story?
2: That's the way it happened. That's the way it happened years ago when they had their recall.
1: Yeah, I've seen all kinds of stories about different types of vehicles from this particular manufacturer that had issues with corrosion of the frame, and eventually the recall was so extensive that no repairs were even attempted. It was simply all buybacks, I'll call it. That's probably not the right phrase for it. But, yeah, people sent along copious amounts of those types of stories.
2: Yes, and, like, there's, there's other issues going on now, too, that people don't realize. There's a, there's a big recall on a snowmobile right now, and I won't mention what snowmobile it is. But there's people, there's a, a stop-ride uh, issue out on a certain model of snowmobile right now, and people are still riding these snowmobiles. They don't realize that if there is an incident with that snowmobile, uh, there is no insurance. There, there's, uh, insurance companies are sending out letters right now uh, to these owners telling them, you have no insurance if you ride it. And uh, something happens if you get hurt or you hurt somebody else there's no insurance okay
1: that's I mean what with,
2: that's what happens with these safety recalls
1: and there's a difference in different types of recalls isn't there You can get a recall on a front headlight that can be see lots of condensation inside because there's a faulty seal there's a long way between that and a corroded frame to the point where it becomes unsafe you know for crash testing or what have you so I get where you're coming from and so no insurance is a individual complication. If you get into an accident one of these rigs, on that sled or in that rig, you're still going to get your health coverage as per any normal citizen in the province. So what sort of insurance complications are you talking about? Replacement value stuff or the like?
2: Um, if, you, if, if, if you get into an accident and uh, because of that safety recall, if somebody gets hurt, uh, say, okay, uh, just say for the snowmobile thing. Uh, say you're going down the trail and uh, you hit somebody. Uh, just touch skis. And that sled catches fire and the other sled catches fire and somebody gets hurt trying to put the fire out. There is no insurance. You're not supposed to be riding
1: it. So a public liability issue.
2: Yes. Uh, collision, everything. There's, there's no coverage. Okay. Right. And that's what I mean by safety recall on a vehicle. Same thing. Um, if you get a letter in the mail and, and they're telling you that you need to go to the dealership and get your frame inspected, and the dealer tells you uh, your vehicle needs a new piece put in the frame, and you go to the dealer and say, Ah, oh, no, I'm not going to bother doing that.
1: I wouldn't mind seeing the letter, because I have a rig that, like everyone else out there, there's been recalls for a variety of things. One that I remember off the top of my head was a, a stability post under the driver's seat. Okay, so when you get the letters, and, I mean, I haven't seen every recall letter that every single person has got from every single manufacturer. But it basically says, this is a recall item. Call to set up a, an appointment. Okay. And sometimes people don't do it until they bring it in for service. And then, of course, they'll t- attend to whatever recalls are outstanding at that point. So when it's a safety-related matter, do you, does it say something that's declarative of your insurance will be canceled, this is a public safety measure, you have to do this immediately or within 14 days? Like, does it read like that? I don't know.
2: Well, like it, like, it all depends on the recall, I think. Like, I think uh, vehicle manufacturers, myself, uh, a lot of them are famous for it. They come up with a lot of recalls. There's a lot of recalls that don't mean a whole lot. I, honestly, I think they come up with a lot of recalls just to get you back into the dealership. A lot of times to get you back into the dealership, and especially with leased vehicles, You'll tell the service advisor, you know what, I'm sick of bringing this vehicle back and forth. Well, what does the service service advisor do? He tells the salesman, then the salesman calls you, and then the salesman says, oh, well, we can get you out of that lease vehicle if you're having problems with it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of these things with uh, these little recalls, like, I see recalls every day. Like, I I do a mail run, and I I, I see recalls from every manufacturer uh, daily. And they're all for little piddly stuff. So, you know, if you're if you're say just for High Hyundai, if I live out here on the West Coast, the only dealers in Cornerbrook, you get sick of driving back and forth to Cornerbrook for stupid little recalls that don't really mean anything. You know, they, they recall every every little thing it seems like. And a lot of it I think is to get you back to the dealer.
1: Could be. Yeah, I I can't argue that point. Now You know, when you, pardon me, go back to the dealer on a recall there's nothing else that you're obliged to do while you're at the dealer and recall items are taken care of by manufacturers warranties as far as i know and that's regardless of the recall item that we're talking about so they yep. can say well you need your brakes some you can say no they can say you need to have this done you can say no they'll say well it's time for a service you can say no so i get your point now some people might feel the pressure okay now i'm here already the vehicle's in there it's in the garage if i need something else done then i should go ahead and abide by the service advisor and get it done that might happen i'm not going to dispute that because every individual is different and sometimes you know there's that little bit of worry maybe if i don't do it i'm going to leave in an unsafe fashion and so i don't want to put myself or anyone else on the road of jeopardy so people just might do it whatever's asked of them whether it be brakes or suspension work or whatever the case may be i uh, appreciate the time craig anything else you want to add to the conversation this morning
2: yeah no i just i just wanted to make you aware like somebody's recalls are like are serious ones like if you got a if you got a piece in your frame that's rotted out and the manufacturer wants to fix it or buy your vehicle back from you. Uh, when it comes to a frame, that's pretty serious stuff. It
1: right? is, but uh, that's why I'd love to see the letter. Because if it's just a, the blank, old, this is the recall, and you don't know what you're getting yourself into, where you drop it off to get the recall dealt with, all of a sudden that's the end of the road for your vehicle in full. I think there's, you know, you, you just said that maybe some of the recall notices are just to get you back into the shop. Same thing can be said if you don't really know what you're talking about when a recall item comes through. Because not everyone is intimately familiar with every working part of a vehicle as it pertains to their safety. Or, like I said, it was just condensation in the front headlights. So I wouldn't mind seeing what they look like, just my own curiosity. Not to prove any point from you or me or anyone else. I'd just be curious to see what that looks like. Uh, Craig, I really appreciate the time. Very quickly, though, last one before I have to go you can go ahead and say what's, what brand of snowmobile has a recall out there because that's public knowledge. You're, you're not betraying them or anybody else if you say it. Just so if there's people listening that maybe haven't seen the recall notice and now their interests are peaked, what, what type of sled is out there with the recall that you're referring to? Uh,
2: 2022 850 Flares.
1: Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Because not everyone might be aware, and they're sitting on an eight fifty Polaris hit, ready to hit the trail today. So, and that's not hurting Polaris because they're the well, one to put the a recall.
2: Ser- it's, a ser- it's a serious recall. Okay. It's, uh, it, it's the, uh, uh, the, the the fuel tank will actually blow up.
1: That sounds serious enough for me.
2: Yeah, they have a recall on a fuel pump. The fuel pump sits in the in the gas in the fuel tank. Yep. And uh, they've had instances where. Uh, the rider is sitting on a snowmobile riding and the tank blows up.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that in certain vehicles on the road, too. Okay.
2: Flares calls it a stop-ride program, and they have a, a shortage of parts right now, and insurance companies are actually sending up. I got a friend of mine in Ontario just got a letter from his insurance company telling him that if he rides that snowmobile, he's on his own. There's no insurance.
1: Fair enough. I'm glad you painted that picture, and I'm glad I asked about the brand because it's a Polaris-led recall, so it's not like you're telling tales out of school. Appreciate the time, Craig. Have a great weekend.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for your time.
1: Pleasure. All the best. Okay, Uh, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, another chat about Beta Nord and the prospects of right after this. Don't go away.
4: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. taking to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Darren, you're on the air.
5: Happy Friday, Patty. How are you?
1: <sighs> Happy Friday to you, too. Not a day too soon. <laughs> I hear you. I hear
5: you. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate the opportunity. Happy to do it. So I wanted to, uh, yeah, just going to take a couple of minutes, uh, I guess, and uh, probably I'll just start out with a, with a bit of a bang and, and see where we go. But the reason for my call is is we're hearing from pretty strong sources that the Equinor plan is to construct 100% of the Beta Nord vessel out of the province, out of the country. And that's, um, I, I guess I'll start with that because that's causing us great concern. And, and we've, as you're probably aware, we've been doing them. A little bit of an engagement uh, event over the last five or six weeks or seven or eight weeks with communities and organizations trying to bring some attention to the project. Uh, and in particular, obviously, the merits of doing the work here in the province and highlighting the experience that the province has between Marystown and basque and Bull Arm and the, the skilled trades workforce and that sort of stuff. And the projects we've done with the Terra Nova c in particular. But I guess, you know, the gist of my call is two things. One is to talk for a minute about a campaign that we're, we've launched. And second is to put this out there that, you know, for people who are, have any attachment to the project or have any uh, interest in the project, you know, I think people need to Stand up and pay attention because it, the plans as I understand it is Equinor is hoping to do the entire vessel 100% uh, as a kind of turnkey deal out of country and that's that leads the province with uh, with probably only an opportunity to do some uh, subsea work albeit subsea work is, is a good win for us and very important but it won't have near the impact on the industry uh, or the province economically as the other top sides work would.
1: Yeah no doubt so what exactly are you hearing Darren pardon me?
5: So what we're hearing is that, that uh, Equinor's intention, subject obviously to negotiations with governments to the benefits agreement, but their intention is to construct 100% of the tops of the vessel and topsides out of the country. There will be nothing associated with the FPSO completed in the province other than subsea work. And one of the excuse me, one of the indicators of that, petty there was an EOI released. I'm not sure it was yesterday or the day before. Um, by Equinor, and they're looking for opponents to do work on the hull with an attached accommodations module and helideck. Now, in the past, you know, we've done accommodations and helidecks here multiple times between Bullarm, Marystown, and Port best uh, So the fact that they've, they've already indicated here that the hull will have those topside uh, pieces attached to it and that they won't be done here Signals to me a very strong indication of where they're headed. And, you know, as I said, I think people in the industry and and people in communities who will be affected by this project need to tune in and pay attention. And, and, you know, what I'm doing is urging people to talk to government and talk to Minister Parsons and their MHAs and let them know because, you know, we're talking to government regularly. You know, Minister Parsons, uh, I'm back and forth with him almost daily. And government, as I understand, has taken a pretty strong stand. Um, But I think people need to let government know that they got their backs on this because. We're not going to get any benefits from the construction side of things unless we drive a hard bargain here. Equinor is on a, on a track, as I see it, to try and do the entire work at a province, and that will be a huge, huge loss for the industry and for the province generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would be worst-case scenario. So you just wonder what gets factored in here, and you've been at that table. You've been in the Cabinet. So this time, I think there's a couple of different compl- different complexities that it's really hard to understand how that's going to impact these negotiations. I still think there's big questions to be asked as to whether or not an equity stake is the best path forward for the province. Then you go down through what royalties would look like in the time for the timeliness of royalties to flow. But the most complicated factor this one, is one of the United Nations pieces, uh, Article 82. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of royalties that are going to have to be paid to to developing nations. We don't know who's paying that yet, whether it be the company, the province, the feds, a combination of all three or whatever uh, that number looks like. But I wonder where that is leading Equinor to take this particular stance because we know... and this is not a slight on the local industry but they can do some of this work for pennies on the dollar for instance in South Korea so I just wonder how all that factors into this stance that you're hearing about
5: yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And uh, unfortunately, uh, through my own experiences, that that's one that I never had because, uh, as you know, this is this is a unique first time ever we, we've reached this far out into the ocean, which brings the UN into the discussion. So, you know, it, it certainly has to factor in, you know, there's no question about that. Um, but, you know, I, I want to pick up on just one thing you said there around pennies on the dollar because uh, that, that's one that I'm going to be talking to the minister about probably in a day or so. Um, no one's ever, no one's ever presented that <clears throat> to us, Patty, it, and that you know that that piece concerns me because uh, we hear that quite often. That you know, labor is, is much cheaper elsewhere, and you can do do the work much cheaper elsewhere, uh, and you don't have the labor capacity in the province and those kinds of things. Uh, and, and, you know, the labour capacity issue is totally false. <clears throat> We're sharing numbers now all the time with people, but it keeps keeps getting brought up. Minister Parsons is getting it put up to him all the time that we don't have the, the capacity to do the work in the province, and that's it's totally false. But, you know, to, to doing the work outside the province, let me just give you this example, because it really, really frustrates me. The, the province and the taxpayers of the province put hundreds of millions of dollars into the refit of the Terranova and, and, and everyone supported it, you know, supported government to try to get that project back on track and get it pumping oil and get people back to work. Two things I want to say about that. First of all is we gave them hundreds of millions of dollars and they turned around and did 95% of the work outside the province with a subsidy from the province, which I think is ridiculous. And secondly, Today, as we speak, we've had to send literally hundreds of people to Spain because they haven't been able to do the work or we had to rework the work that was done by the Spanish construction crew. Um, and, you know, it just—it boggles the mind that we would give them subsidies like that, send the work to Spain, and then have to send our own workers over, put them up in hotels, fly them over, and redo some of the work and do the work that they don't have the expertise to do. And on top of that, as you probably are aware, Suncor re- re- recorded, as I understand it, record profits for the last quarter of 2022 – so I guess my point is, uh, number two, the grass is not always greener when we go outside the country. Or number one, sorry, when we go outside the country. Uh, and number two, there has to be negotiations. There's no doubt about it. But but companies have to recognize that it's our resource. The province owns the resource, and we have a right to get maximum benefit from it. It's not about just giving Equinor or Suncor of the world record profits for shareholders. There has to be. Construction opportunities and local contractor opportunities and local benefits accrue to local communities, in my view. Uh,
1: no argument coming from me. Uh, and then, of course, there's some things that don't get factored into the public discourse on these things. For instance, inside benefits agreements, there's relations with research and development, which, you know, there's been some back and forth. And remember, ExxonMobil got a big load of money back from us based on a ruling they appeal at the CNLPB. So there's a bunch of different tangents that don't necessarily get factored in as much as they probably should. At my comments, look, I don't think I've ever said we don't have capacity of workers. Uh, there are some restrictions we have with size of laydown yards and some of the ability to do, say, for instance, some haul work is my understanding. And the comment on pennies, pennies on the dollar, it wasn't that we don't have the people, but this, this came from someone I know who was in the industry, and this was about some Hebron work that was done. So there was, let's just use round numbers. So if there was 15% of the work done here and add another 65% done elsewhere, in this case I believe it was all in South Korea, is that they did that amount of work for not, that not six times what we uh, cost us here to do the work here, but for far less than that. That's where the reference to the pennies on the dollar is. Not that we're too expensive or we're out of whack or we're kidding ourselves or none of that stuff. Is that in some of these areas they just so happen to be able to do it cheaper. And you and I both know the reasons. And there's nothing wrong with the uh, the want for people to do the business here. I want the business done here. Of course we do. And remember back again, we're talking next time mobile Some of the work that they did out of province. What happened? As opposed to generating jobs in the tax base, what we did did is we saw them pay us a lump sum number i think it was 110 million dollars at the time so i just think there's a few moving parts there that you know realistically belong in the conversation and not to dissuade local jobs why would i do that i want everyone to have a job or not to punch holes in our ability because we have tons of ability and lots of experience albeit with some restrictions for instance in a lay down yard and the capacity required for some of these projects your thoughts
5: yeah, no, I appreciate your comments. And uh, just to be clear, when I responded, I wasn't responding to you personally saying that because you're repeating comments that we're hearing as well. So uh, my my response was directed more to industry generally uh, and to those who are making the comments. But, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, but, you know, to go back to work outside the province, let's, let's go back to Nova, for example, probably a little known fact. That benefited the province was that uh, Ter- the Terra Nova had a, a huge piece of the top size work construct- constructed out of province. Yep. And when it was brought to Bull Arm, uh, Newfoundlanders, Labradorians picked up two million person hours of work to redo the work that was done out of province because it didn't meet the criteria required by the company to use the work as part of the top side. So I guess my point is, Donna, is I, I don't disagree with with, with anything that you said, but my, my point is it's our resource and irregardless of what it costs to do elsewhere, it has to be factored in in my opinion, um, that the resource belongs to Newfoundland and Labrador and we have a right to benefit from it. And c- companies can use the argument however they want, that they can do it cheaper elsewhere. But the fact is, that is irrelevant. It's our resource, and we have, have a right to benefit first, from my perspective. On the other piece you mentioned, that, that is a very, very good point around the research piece. Because in the benefits agreement, you, you know, when you and I chat regularly, and, and most of the focus is around local jobs and spin offs. But you're right, there's a lot of good things in the benefits agreement besides the jobs. There's the, the research and development investments that get made into the province. Uh, One of the good things that came out of the original Beta Nord deal was was a focus on a hub being developed here for remote uh, operations of offshore vessels. I think that was terrific. Uh, The other piece that's usually built in, Patty, is is a focus on – women uh, indigenous and other underrepresented groups and ensuring that they get opportunities to go to work uh, and a and part tied to that of course is the professional development of workforce making sure that we reinvest in, in keeping our workers trained so you're right the, the benefits agreement provides a broad array of benefits to the province not just the the uh, creation of local jobs no question
1: Appreciate the time here, Darren. I don't imagine there's anybody cheering against having as many jobs as humanly possible done here in this province because it's to our collective best interest. I appreciate the time. Thank you.
5: Yes, thanks, Patty, and uh, we'll probably connect again next week or
1: so. I appreciate the time. I look forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Darren King, the Executive Director at Trades NL. Uh, just quickly before we get to the break and when we come back, we are going to speak with the uh, Minister of Children's Seniors, and Social Development. Also importantly for this conversation, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corp. That's John Abbott. But regarding the recall on Polaris snowmobiles for that – what are they calling it? The uh, Under specific conditions, vapors may be ignited inside the fuel tank, causing a potential in, in, injury hazard to consumers. It's a stop ride or stop sale for more than 230,000 of the snow machines. So, not just the one addition that the caller mentioned, all the way back to 2021 to 2023 Matrix, 2015 to 2022 Axis, and select 2013 to 2014 Trail Performance snowmobiles. So, there's a pretty wide recall there. Let's take a break when we come back. Minister John Abbott, take away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. It's more to the minister responsible for the Newfoundland, Lousing, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, of course, also the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. That's John Abbott. Minister Abbott, you're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty, and I uh, appreciate your uh, background to uh, Friday the 13th.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really curious, isn't it? You know, whether it be Norse mythology or the Last Supper, it's just always been an interesting day and background for me. Uh, I appreciate making time. So you've had an opportunity to tour yourself uh, some of the housing-related matters in Nassibut, whether it be Nain, Hopedale, and otherwise. And also we've seen a federal housing advocate, marie Jose Ull also touring that part of Labrador earlier. What? What did you see?
6: Well, one of the things that I did earlier this week was to uh, visit Nain and meet with the Nunatsavut government and representatives, and while we were there, we also toured the the town, and some of the housing went in and met families in housing provided by the Newfoundland-Labrador Housing Corporation, also provided by the Nunatsavut government itself and some other homes to see what uh, what the challenges are. And uh, what we've committed to doing is working with their new housing commission to make sure we can uh, build new uh, housing because there's a large uh, growth in population there, as well as to make sure we've got the, any units uh, uh, that need repairs that they are done as quickly uh, as possible. We've set aside the money to do the repairs for the Newfoundland and Labrador housing units. Uh, we're uh, going to make sure with the commission that we also made, uh, can help them out as well. Uh, one of the challenges of course, is uh, is the distance and getting the supplies and materials in, getting contractors on site, and that continues to be a challenge for for both uh, organizations.
1: You know, the reference to what has been seen up there, whether it be deplorable, human rights disaster, abominable, is it?
6: Well, the... There's no doubt there's, there's lots of challenges, and there are a growing population, and uh, there is a big need to both improve the quality of some of the housing that's already there and to build uh, build new units as quickly as possible.
1: Fair enough. Uh, you know, there's, you and I have talked in the past, of course we have, and some of the issues regarding the number of units uh, owned and operated by the Housing Corp that have been shuttered, waiting for repairs, or maybe they're going to be condemned in full, What kind of... What kind of progress have we made in the last 12 months, whether it be in hard number of units or percentage-wise, to get some of these units back up and running and house people who need it?
6: We're very active through the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation to make sure any of our units that become vacant are uh, used and people, uh, families put in them as quickly as possible. Uh, we have sort of two issues to deal with. One is just regular maintenance. Uh, if a family leaves one unit to move to another, uh, we'll make sure we go in if we need to refresh the painting, those kinds of things, and we do that... Uh, in as quickly as possible. Uh, We have another bunch of units, uh, just over 60 right now, that need major repairs. Uh, So that may need uh, new uh, plumbing fixtures, new kitchens, uh, new flooring, all of those kinds of things. Uh, So we've allocated the money for that. We're doing those as quickly as uh, we can get them done. Again, we're challenged with getting the the contractors in place because of the shortage of of workers. Uh, But we're doing this as as expeditiously as possible. And uh, we're hopeful over the next six, uh, nine months to, to make sure we have all of those done.
1: Do we have a turnaround timelines, benchmarks to hit as to whether or not we're hitting targets with, okay, a family moves out, there's a difference between needing a fresh lick of paint yep. versus some of the major renovations you spoke to. So do we have time frames that we're working on, and are we hitting our targets?
6: So our maintenance uh, department uh, does have those uh, standards that they've developed to make sure they can respond uh, as quickly as, as possible. Uh, and as I said, the biggest Challenge we have right now is just making sure we can get the contractors uh, on site as quickly uh, as possible, uh, so that we can get those uh, other units up, uh, up and running. Uh, it's been said, uh, and, and one of the things, of course, is uh, is having the budget. And I've made sure here as minister that we've got the budget allocated. Uh, we're in the position now to look uh, to sign a new agreement with the federal government. They're prepared to provide some additional funding uh, to the province to to make sure all our social housing units. are are up, to, up to par and uh, we'll be working on that uh, in the new year in the new fiscal year as well
1: is there a slowdown anticipated in putting some of these units back in play whether it be with uh, the cost of labor the price of supplies inflation all the rest of it
6: well we've seen certainly our cost uh, increase but uh, we've alloc- uh, we've allocated in our budget to to take care of that for for the current year and in, into next year so we're that's less of an issue it's just making sure we can get the contractors mm-hmm. uh, you know we do have to do tenders and those things, so that takes a bit of time, Uh, but we are committed to to getting those units uh, uh, up and running as quickly as possible.
1: A conversation here in the city on Monday about the pending storm, that didn't turn out to be much of one, but it was about the vulnerable people in society, and you would deal with many of these circumstances. You know, the city says they have indeed in the past opened up a warming center, some emergency shelters for these types of storms and cold weather events. But a lot of the authority and jurisdiction belongs inside of your department. What's the conversation look like inside your department, knowing that these numbers of people may be turned away from the gathering place or nowhere to go, petty crimes, going to emergency rooms to get in and out of the elements? Where's the conversation lie in your department now? Because the numbers are staggering. The most recent research, just in the city itself, says 231 people are homeless, and you know that's nowhere near reflective of the accurate number. So what does that conversation look like for emergency shelter for these cold weather events?
6: Uh, Patty, no, uh, and that's uh, something that uh, I'm certainly uh, cognizant of and monitoring from uh, from where I sit in uh, with uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. So we have a team in place uh, to monitor all that is happening across the province, whether it's in St. John's, uh, West Coast, Labrador, uh, for in- individuals needing shelter, uh, whether during the day or, or night. Uh, we have the resor- financial resources in place to make sure anybody who needs uh, shelter uh, can get access uh, a shelter and so we m- we are committed to that I uh, heard uh, Kim grant uh, the gathering place on this morning or er, in on the OCM, and she talked about the, you know the what they're doing and the challenges that they have so during the the, the daytime ours of course in st. John's the gathering place is open for uh, for social activity so people can literally get in out of the cold uh, when and if needed uh, we have uh, our 1-800 number uh, that people then can call uh, and or the gathering place can call on their behalf to make sure that we can house them at night in in the shelter here in the city or or elsewhere and we use and if we don't have a shelter available we will use a hotel room and we have uh, that happening right uh, right across the province uh at some points in time an individual may not uh want to to come into a shelter may not want to go to a hotel room uh and uh, but we will make sure that uh, we reach out uh, to those individuals to uh, make make sure we can support them when, when and where we can
1: minister Abbott, i have a couple more do you have the possibility to stay on hold throughout the news or should we forge ahead uh, up to you, sir. Okay, one quick one, then. I want to get this one. Do we think there's going to be any changes afoot regarding emergency shelters? So a hotel room and the costs associated with it, the private-operated private, uh, private operated emergency shelters, the costs associated with it, versus what it would cost to construct, to own and operate and to manage something that the government was involved in, and solely the government. Because it sounds like to me those private shelters and hotel rooms, we could do a lot more with that money.
6: Uh, Well, I I certainly understand the question. So one of the things we are doing, and we announced this past spring, uh, that we are in St. John's building and uh, renovating uh, at the Mercy Convent. uh, So to make sure for the city that we have additional capacity, both uh, increased shelter beds, uh, we'll have uh, supportive housing where there will be supports in place to help individuals, uh, and then there will be longer-term rental for for people. Uh, So that's ninety. Units that we'll be in total that we'll be uh, having in place. Uh, We are looking at uh, the possibility now of going out with a request for proposals for uh, shelter beds in the in the community. Uh, The thing we can never manage 100% accuracy is what those numbers will be at any point in time. Uh, So up to pre-COVID, our numbers were relatively small post-COVID, uh, our numbers are quite, uh, they've increased dramatically. And we have, uh, and that's why we've had to use private shelters and hotel rooms to, to meet that uh, increased demand. Recognizing that's probably going to be there for the longer term. Now we want to have some more uh, more cost-effective and stable solutions for, for this community. Same thing we're doing up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Uh, we have repeat challenges there, so we are now uh, planning to, to build a brand new facility that will house and should uh, address the need up there as well.
1: Unfortunately, overbuilding might feel like a less of an error in judgment than underbuilding at this moment in time. I hear you. Um, so, a couple of very quick ones. Did you want to pass comment on the lights in the outer battery? I think Dave said that to me.
6: Yes, so, uh, well I've been, obviously, as the MHA resp- uh, over, you know, looking after, shall we say, the uh, St. John's East Kitty and And the outer battery i've had a lot of conversations uh with the residents out there uh met the residents a group of residents i met with uh, the mayor the deputy mayor and the ward counselor and staff uh, there early december to talk about what is happening what are some solutions what the possibility of using existing legislation under the st john city act or the need for a new bylaw the interesting thing for me was there was some question around How the city could act, could it act under its existing city act? So I brought that issue back to the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs to ask them, could the city act under its current legislation? So there was some doubt whether they could or should. Uh, So we relayed that information back to the city, uh, but with the offer to say, look, if you feel that the current act doesn't allow you to uh, pass the bylaw, then that the province would be prepared to go to the House of Assembly and uh, pass an amendment to the act to allow them to pass such a bylaw. So that was so that's so. Uh, my expectation then is that the city would have taken the province up on that offer. I understand from what the mayor is saying that they're not prepared to do that. But interesting enough, I've got information here in front of me. There are three cities, as an example, across Canada: Kingston, Calgary, Mississauga, have legislation which clearly says, or excuse me, bylaws which clearly say that if there's a nuisance, then the city can act to. Re- move that nuisance, uh, which is the case here. This is not a dispute between neighbors. This is a public nuisance that needs to be uh, addressed by the city to support the, re- the residents. And I would expect that the city council, I understand the deputy mayor, is going to bring in a, uh, uh, a resolution to that effect. Hopefully the city can uh, see the uh, their way through to, to do just that.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Hopefully next week you also have time, because I'd love to talk about the status of the all-party committee. Look at basic income, some timelines for recommendations, what have you, but we'll try to do that next week.
6: We're happy to do so. Uh, have a good weekend.
1: You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Minister John Adams, responsible for Newfoundland Housing Corp. and all the rest that you heard. You want to talk about that or anything else, you can do it after the news. Coming up, first call after the break, uh, Clarenville lawyer Greg French. We're talking Crown Lands. Don't go away.
4: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning to Clarenville lawyer, Greg French, and talking some Crown Lands. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Thanks for having me, Patty. I uh, appreciate your time and your patience this morning. Okay, let's get right into it. The big sticking point for many and most, certainly people like yourself, who understand the proposed areas of consideration for Crown Lands Amendments or Amendments to the Lands Act is 1977. What about it?
7: Well, 1977 is the date that uh, government officially cut off all squatters' rights against Crown land. Now, the problem with that is that they decided that was going to be the date in May of 1976. So essentially, the entire public of Newfoundland got seven months' notice that squatters' rights was being cut off. That obviously creates a problem for people who moved onto their land in the late 50s or, or throughout the 1960s and the early 1970s. One thought I had this morning was uh, when it comes to resettlement, for instance, because a lot of communities, uh, people towed their houses out in the 1960s and up to about 1971. So that's not going to solve anything for a lot of people, especially in rural areas of the province. 1977 has always been the uh, sticking point because the problem we have is that no period of occupation under the current law counts after 1977. You, you could have a house for a thousand years on a piece of land, but if it was there after 1977, but it doesn't meet the requirements otherwise, it's not going to make a difference. And that's a problem because what is the government going to do about this? Do they intend to enforce these um, this prohibition against people? Do they intend to repossess people's land? That's really an open question and the uh, proposed changes don't address that at all.
1: Well, the quote from you is that through no fault to your own you build a house in 1968 and then all of a sudden 77 comes around and then the land that you thought you had title to is not so so that makes all the sense in the world to me you also go on one of the areas of consideration is to look at the continuous uh, uh ownership or the continuous occupation from 20 years to cut it in half to 10 you say that's not going to make an appreciable difference uh, as uh, as well why
7: well, there's something that it will make easier because right now, in order for us to get title against Crown lands, we have to go back 1956 to 1977. You have to have been on the land, doing something with the land for that period. So if you started in 58 or 59 or 60, tough luck to you under the current rules. Changing it to 1966, okay, that opens up a bit of a, uh, a window of opportunity there for people who built you know, between 1957 and 1966. And it also makes it easier to find people who can swear to the history of the land, since since finding people who can swear to who was on what land 68 years ago is becoming harder and harder each day. So changing it to 1966 only buys us a bit of time before we have to have this discussion all over again.
1: And then, you know, that might be one of the so-called band-aids. But then there's one of the other areas Minister Bragg has spoke to. It's about a timeline for future claims of adverse possession, you know, squatters' rights. Proposing a five-year limit. You go on to say that that's not viable. Why so?
7: Well, the concern I have there is that we have a lot of uh, land claims in this province that are absolutely... uh Viable and absolutely would meet the Section 36 requirements today that aren't documented anywhere. You have people who've, you know, you've had your grandfather's house on the land since the 40s, but grandfather never had a survey and has passed through the family for generations without deeds, without surveys. The claim is perfectly valid, it just isn't recorded. So, this five year window. If you don't meet that period, does that mean that you lose the house and land, even though it's been there 80 or 90 years? We also run into a problem, especially in rural areas. Uh, you know, much in the same way as the grandfather's house example. You know, people got their land for $500 and built their own house. So you know, we're talking about people who may not have a lot of money, but they legitimately own their home or certainly feel they legitimately own their home. And I think the public would agree. But now they're being told, you must get a survey by this period. You must hire a lawyer and get all this done within this period. You have to jump through all these hoops in a set period of time. And if you're a senior citizen on a fixed income, you know, now you're under the gun. I think that's uh, a major concern, because a lot of the time when we see people who have uh, unperfected title today, we are dealing with people you know especially older people who've been in their houses all these years and simply never needed this title because it was never in contest before the government is effectively throwing down the gauntlet on them
1: so we'll go through the third year consideration before we get to alternatives and this is something that I don't even know what it means to be honest with you is that the province may be able to provide or issue a document declaring no interest in the land I don't really know what that means or how that works your take
7: well, your your take is the same as my take, because I don't know what that would entail either, because it's not very clear. It certainly sounds like the government is prepared to say, look, we're not going to lay any claim to this land. You figure out who owns it. Now, that would certainly be a step in the right direction, because it removes the government as an opponent from – People. I mean we certainly don't need the government being adversarial toward its own citizens. But what does it take to get that letter? If you still have to meet the 1956 or 1966, whatever it may be, you know, if you still have to meet this period in order to get that letter – then they're just talking about the status quo. That's not a change. That's just what things are right now. If they're proposing that, look, on an ad hoc basis, case by case, we'll consider whether or not to give you your land, well, that's all well and good, except we don't know what's going to happen if you go and apply for your land. If you, go, if you go forward for one of these letters of no interest and the government says, oh, well, actually, we are going to take an interest, you know, have you just put a target on your own back? I mean, we look at the case of the Diamonds who've come forward in the CBC story. Like Their house was built in 1983. If they were to apply for one of these letters, are they going to be rejected? If anybody else in similar circumstances applies for a letter, are they going to find themselves in the same position?
1: (laughs) Excellent question. Uh, I've made this blurt, and it may or may not have any merit or consequence, but here's what I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around. So I build a home. I don't have a clear title, whatever the case may be, like the diamonds or anybody else but my municipality's been collecting my taxes. There's two factors go into my eventual property tax, is the mill rate set by the council, and then the assessment brought forward by the assessment agency of the province, which includes everything except for the city of St. John's. So that agency was enabled by the Amendments Act of 2006. I know it's a standalone sort of quasi relationship between the province and the assessment agency, but the province enabled them to apply one of the factors that ends up my property tax, For me, and I could be completely out to lunch, for me that sort of says that the government has enabled the lack of interest or authority or control of that plot of land.
7: Well, this is where we have a very serious problem in Newfoundland, which goes even beyond the Section 36 issue, because right now there are multiple government departments with overlapping authority to one degree or another as it relates to land. The Registry of Deeds is run by Service NL. Crown Lands is under Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. Municipal Affairs is responsible for the Municipal Assessment Agency. All three of those departments are purporting to deal with land in some way. You know, your taxes are set by Municipal assessment agency you have municipal governments that say yes you know patty daly owns this house patty daly is paying taxes on this house you have registered documents saying patty daly owns this house and he got it from person a who got it from person b and crown lands can come in and say yes but that's all ours so it doesn't matter i mean i've seen issues where newfoundland and labrador housing has given mortgages to people especially in rural areas to uh, to fix up you know, fix up their houses and they give them a mortgage and it's a government mortgage and we try and fix up the title and we have the same issue that the government comes back and says yes but that's crown land never mind that you know, Newfoundland Housing gave you a mortgage on it in the 70s this was actually a uh, a stated concern back in the 70s when the uh, when this law was being changed, when the 1977 cutoff was being put in, because as I read the debates at the time, the intention was: look, we got to stop squatters' rights because this is getting out of hand. But as a compromise, look, we want to get everybody on the records, we want to get everybody on the books, because people are trying to get these housing loans, people are trying to get money to you know, we're trying to develop Newfoundland to a first world province. And so we want to get people coming forward and on the books, but we can't have this going on forward. And unfortunately, it's become a bit of a Frankenstein's monster today.
1: Yeah, the Royal Bank would like to have a word about who owns my home. (laughs) Okay, so if you had your drawers and some authority to be involved in crafting the amendments to the Lands Act that would make this better, is it simply about just tearing up the past between 1977, the 1st of January of that year, and now – putting back squatters' rights in full, or what are the alternatives that can make this easier for individuals?
7: Well, there's two extremes to it. Uh, I liken it to a game of poker, that you have to go all-in or fold. Now, the all-in approach is like a full government buy-in to figuring out who owns what. I think that carries some benefits, but it certainly carries some burdens, the biggest one being cost, because essentially things – the horse is so far out of the barn right now that the only way we're ever going to figure it out is to go parcel by parcel through the province of Newfoundland and figure out who owns what. Is this crown land? Is this – private land map it all out on the provincial lands map and say look this is the boundaries of all private land within the province anything outside of that if you're built on it you're on crown land and we know that for a fact we recognize all current occupation we let go this uh... Uh, fixation on the 1977 period and the strictures of law and look at it practically to say look, you know, the Diamonds have a house here since 1983 or so and so towed their house over from the Flat Islands in 1970 and they're on this and this is what they've surveyed fine, they can have that. If you look at the Crown Lands map for uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay for instance, that's exactly what the map looks like. Now of course Happy Valley Goose Bay was a planned community that was built after the war so of course all the documents are in order there but you can figure out at a glance what is and isn't crown land. It's a very it's a very nice uh, system and ideally that's what the entire province would look like if we got control over everything. But that's a major investment of time and a major investment of money. On the opposite end of it, at the opposite extreme is look, reinstate squatters rights, government gets out of the way as an obstruction, and we just outsource it to the lawyers to fix title parcel by parcel for individuals and, you know, crown lands will continue their investigations and if someone is violating the law today in an unambiguous way, then we'll go and prosecute. But other than that, you know, land title is a question for the lawyers. That's not a desirable solution either, I'd suggest, because I think that goes too far and, you know, we're back to the same chaos we had before the 70s. I mean, at the middle ground, I mean, Simply the, um, the easiest way to go about it is, look, we've got to have some allowance for what's happened after 77. You know, did, you, did you build with an honest belief in your title? Are there deeds? Are there documents? Are there affidavits? Why did you build here? And if you got some answer for that question, government should give you a quick claim. Government should give you a deed. Government should give you a release. Put you on the official records so the government knows you're there, and we all agree that this is not crown land, and let you be. That would be the simplest solution. It puts the onus back on people to come forward and work it out. But there needs to be some certainty that if you come forward, you're not going to find yourself in the situation that, unfortunately, dozens of people are currently in right now before the courts, where you've come forward with your legitimate claim, you've put it before Crown lands to say, look, here's the reason I own my land, and they turn around and say, no, you don't.
1: I really appreciate your time and your perspective and your expertise this morning, Greg. Thank you very much.
7: And thank you for having me, Patty. Take you a care.
1: pleasure. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Here you go. This paints a very clear picture for someone in the know. Let's take a break. When we come back, Dave's there to talk about senior hockey out on the West Coast. Kicked off last weekend. Don't go away. Hey, welcome back. Line number two. Dave, you're on the air.
8: Uh, Patty, how are you this morning?
1: Not too bad, thanks. How about you?
8: Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I want to hand out some congratulations this morning to the organizer of the uh, West Coast Senior Hockey League. Sounds good. Now, I to make it quite clear, I'm a resident of Mount Pearl, and uh, I have no. Uh, inter- I, you know, I have a lot of interest in senior hockey, but uh, I don't know anybody that did the organizing in that. But I. It took my attention this morning when I opened up the telegram and saw the Cornerbrook uh, rain out there completely blacked for the senior hockey game, you know? And uh, it's brought back to fun memories for me. I'm a senior, and I remember senior hockey when it was going good in St. John's here, when uh, going down to the old stadium, when you had to line up on Lake Avenue and go down around the corner on Kingsbridge Road to get in to see the Caps playing Quarterbrook or Grand Falls or Steamville or whatever. You know, so it's... Uh, it's good to see senior hockey and then they mentioned in the paper that uh, the Bruce Arena when the Portabas Mariners had their first game the other night that was full so uh, it's great to see senior hockey back with and uh, I want to stress that it's mostly local local players you know uh, and uh, it's a great thing to see I don't know how you feel about it
1: oh I think it's brilliant uh, we had Darren Colbert on the show he's the coach of the Cornerbrook Royals of course one yeah. of the three teams that have brought West Coast senior back yeah. I, I'm a big supporter wow well, I think it's just absolutely fantastic that the people are willing to put in the effort and the local players are willing to strap them yeah. on, play for keeps, playing some senior. Two yeah. sellouts last weekend. Absolutely yeah. full sellouts. They turned people away in Cornerbrook. Yeah. They ran out of beer after a second period in Cornerbrook, so <laughs> well, that gives you an no idea how big the crowd was.
8: Yeah, but I, I, uh, I remember, because I, I go back, I'm in my 80s, I go back quite a ways to senior hockey, and I remember one time uh, back years ago when uh, when they had a lot the imports here, you know, Bill and, uh, uh, Gosh, Atlanta, and all these guys. Yeah. You know, you're probably a little bit—you're a little bit younger than I am, so you probably wouldn't remember some of the names I'm mentioning. But uh, uh, I remember one time the American Hockey League. Uh, competed Complained about the uh, that the senior Newfoundland Senior Hockey League was uh, robbing some of their players, paying paying them more money that they could pay them. So that was quite ironical, you know, around that time to see that uh, a senior league in Newfoundland was taking players from the American Hockey League, which is a, a step below the NHL. You
1: know, I, I think it's the, the, you're absolutely right on that front too. Now, money was kind of the ruination of yeah. the league, the provincial wide league yeah, at the time. But oh, I remember those names. As a matter yeah. of fact, my father was running the same. Saint- caps with Steve Marshall in the yeah. Billy Riley years. The first bite of lunch that Bill Riley ever had in this province was at my house. Same with yeah. Ross Adams. So I remember yeah. those guys, Richard Lintow, uh, yeah. Gussie Greco, Hilton yeah. Ruggles, Stan yeah. Henniger. Those were some of the big imports. And of course, then you bring in the... Uh, oh, the name just jumped out of my mind. The, yeah. the Robert's brothers were also yeah, playing here.
8: Right. Yeah, that's they right. Were, they were the tough guys, right? Yep. And I also wanted to uh, take note that uh, I noticed that uh, Dare Lake is having their first game... Uh, West this this Friday I think they're having the first game tonight and they're they're going to retire uh, number 24 Darren Langdon's number so I thought that was quite interesting when I read that you know
1: yeah of course and uh, Langer not only played a number of years with yeah. the Red Wings coached him and yeah. probably driving force he had a
8: good NHL career too
1: absolutely he did I still yeah. I see him out there doing some uh, alumni games I believe he's up in Labrador uh, playing in the Habs yeah. alumni game uh, so yeah. yeah Langer's been great
8: I liked uh, uh, I liked Langdon uh, I, I'm not uh, a violent person but uh, I like to see him dropping the gloves a scattered time you know he was good at it not long, time, uh, long as I wasn't on the other end of his punches you know <laughs>
1: well in his day he was amongst the toughest guys in the National Hockey League for sure
8: one of the tough guys no doubt about it
1: yeah how many years did Langdon play in the NHL maybe 10 years 9 10 uh, 11 years
8: I think probably 10 or a few more he's one of the longest ones uh, from Newfoundland that played to stuck it out in the NHL and of course the NHL has changed a that now you know uh, I don't like. Uh, I'm getting a little bit fed up with the refereeing too. You know, sometimes you know, if you touch a guy on the arm, you get it uh, for tripping and stuff like that. I think the, the referees are, uh, you know, a little bit too strict. I don't like the rough stuff now, like driving somebody into the boards first. They, 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 uh, they, they uh, you know, they should be penalised and severely. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean,
8: some of the, some of the, and even in the World Juniors, some of the, some of the penalties called were uh, I, I thought they were. Kind of suspect, you know, but that's the way it goes. I guess everything, uh, nobody stays, nothing stays the same, you know, and and sports have changed a lot over the years, you know, as you probably noticed too, you
1: know? Yeah, of course. Now, the international ice hockey rules are going to be vastly different, and we, you know, because we don't see it all the time, we're not used to it. No. But uh, uh, I'm the Langdon front, so Dave Williams just whispered in my ear, played 521 games over the course of 10 seasons. I know he started with the Rangers, he played in Carolina, Montreal, Vancouver, New New Jersey. Jersey, yeah?
8: Yeah. Yeah, he had, a, he had a great career, and it's nice to see that he's been recognized in his hometown to, to retiring his number. So I thought that was quite interesting when I saw that in the paper, you know?
1: I think it's terrific. I'm really glad you yeah. called on this one, Dave. I always enjoy a bit of senior hockey chat.
8: Yeah, well, I, I enjoy your show, Paddy, and uh, uh, there's been a lot of different commentators on open line. I've listened to it over the years, and uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give you a 12.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you, Dave.
8: Okay, have a good
1: day, Patty. You too, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going back out to the West Coast. Well, I guess Dave was gone from Mount Pearl, but he was talking about West Coast Senior Hockey. Let's see what's happening on the slopes and the conditions where we say good morning to Dustin Parsons. He's the marketing manager at Marble. And who else did you want me to pump here, Dave? I couldn't really hear you. We're also going to talk a bit about beekeeping. David Walsh, he is the commercial director of the NL Beekeepers Association. they got something coming up over the weekend. Somebody called yesterday about a chainsaw. What happens if you buck a nail or a rock? And the repairs are required. Bruno knows. He'll tell us about it after this. Talk away.
4: Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian
1: O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Take a moment to the marketing manager at Marble Mountain. That's Dustin Parsons. Hiya, Dustin. You're on the air.
9: Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be on.
1: And hopefully the hill has a bit more of a Dustin.
9: (laughs) Yeah we've been getting a little dust in here lately, but uh, this weekend doesn't look like it's going to do us any favors.
1: Which is just brutal because not only do I enjoy Marble myself selfishly, is that you just have had a couple of seasons that have been very difficult to say the very least, so you need a good one here.
9: Yeah, we do, we really do and uh, but you know really all signs point to that happening. Uh, it's just you know the start is always a bit uh, a bit rocky and the waiting is the hardest part.
1: Always is. So before we get into the conditions right now, before the warm weather might impact them, how did the summer go? Because I saw in a news story, you're looking forward to getting back to what you guys do best, and that's to run a ski hill and a ski lodge and accommodations. What kind of stuff went on during the summer?
0: Yeah, thanks for
9: asking. Um, So we just had our first ever summer of Marble being open and active uh, to the public. And when our new kind of management team was formed last fall, we realized that's most likely the only way forward for Marble in any ski resort to be profitable. And uh, it's just, you know, we all know the troubles Marble's had over the years. And to us, we just don't see how it's feasible when the place is only turning a revenue for three or four months out of the year. And meanwhile, it's sat vac- Vacant, as one of the most impressive venues uh, in the province. So we tried our hand at a few things. Uh, we opened up a restaurant and kept it open all summer called Bishop's Tavern, and that went very well we started laying the the I guess doing a grassroots effort to develop mountain biking here on the hill. And we've cut our first trail and formed an alliance with the West Coast Cycling Association. So there's really interesting things happening there that by next season will probably look like people being able to take their mountain bikes up the lift and and ride the mountain. So that's really exciting. And we started that this summer. We also had a few big concerts. Uh, We had the Fables out for a big Canada Day show. And we also had Classified, one of Canada's top hip-hop artists out here, um, so we tried a bit of this and a bit of that amongst the, you know, couple dozen weddings that we had here and a few special events and conferences. And I think, you know, a, a little more practice and a, a little more refinement to some of the plans. And Marble will be totally viable to stay open in, in the summertime.
1: Sure, hope so. Okay, and in the fables, of course, now they fit the hockey psyche worldwide with the Canadian goal-scoring tune that is Heave Away. Wild stuff. Uh, Dustin, what are the conditions like today? What's the combo between man-made and natural snow?
9: So right now, what we have open for people to ride is almost entirely man-made snow. Uh, which is our lower mountain. Uh, The top of the snow has been getting snow for the last month, basically, and some of the low mountain precipitation actually turned into snow on the top. Uh, It looks good. It's not quite ready on the top yet. We still need to groom it out, uh, and we still really want to get a layer of man-made snow on that as well because as we're about to see this weekend, man-made snow holds up way better in wet conditions than natural snow. And uh, so we're not too worried about what's about to happen on, on the bottom here, and uh, also it's worth noting that we bought some new snowmaking equipment this year, and uh, we instantly on opening day noticed a huge difference in the quality of the snow that was being made. A lot of the people riding were commenting that it felt and seemed just like they were riding natural snow, and uh, just... To break it down simply, basically, these new snow guns have finer nozzles on them that atomize the water smaller and make it more, make it feel more like a snowflake than an ice crystal. So, um, yeah, the conditions basically are really good. People are having a lot of fun right now on the, you know, five slopes that we have open
1: yeah i mean if people have skied in other parts of the country i learned how to ski out in the rockies so that gives you one type of snow then of course you go ski in places like uh, quebec and you do a bit more chattering because even though the natural snow is very much a bit more icy than a natural snowflake you have to be a really uh in tune skier to notice the difference between quality man-made snow and regular natural snow for rideability anyway so i'm glad to hear you're getting that sort of result with your new man-made snow guns uh Give us some idea about how passes are going, because I know there's also been the creation of a weekend pass, which makes all the sense in the world. Where are we with uh, selling passes this year?
9: So our season, like the revenue of season pass sales seems to be up and we've just noticed some changes in the sale of certain um, pass types. And like you mentioned, we created new pass types and the weekend pass is a notable one because one thing that we kept hearing from a lot of people, we knew that when people were thinking about buying the season pass, you know, the early bird price for say $500, they break it down of like, okay, how many days can I actually go riding? I, I work every week. I can't really, I can only go on the weekends. That means I need to go 10 times over the the weekend to get my money worth of my season pass kind of thing so we just want to make it simpler for people and for people like in St. John's who might just be coming over for three or four weekends in the year they can buy the season pass and 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 be part be a member of what's going on here and and save some money so uh, adding a few of those new types of things we're we're noticing different types of people buying uh, and overall the revenue is up I don't exactly know the total number of passes right yet we're still digging through that trying to separate you know the household pass and the multi-passes and things to identify exactly how many people purchased.
1: I'll give you a chance to dangle a couple of special events, whether it be the jib fest of the world or others, where people might want to plot their trip around, uh, whether it be a special event or the races or what have you, at Marable this winter
9: well thank you for the chance to dangle um, you know special events are something that we realized there is also a huge opportunity for Marvel in the past the only time events really happened here is when outside companies were coming to produce them which is cool but it doesn't happen quite enough so we decided to produce our own events here as a uh, profit generating way to have fun so uh, on the horizon uh, we have Jib Fest coming up uh, on February 18th and 19th and so that is done by uh, Brent Mack and Carter Snow guys out in St. John's biggest collegiate event in atlantic canada which means the biggest sort of festival that appeals to uh, people aged 19 to 25 in the winter so that's going to be a great time the night before that february 17th we have nick earl one of the island's top young rockers out here for his first big west coast show awesome um on the 25th of february we've got the navigators here for a big do to celebrate cornerbrook's 50th anniversary of the winter carnival on March 3rd and 4th, we've got Lanya Vanya Music Festival, which is a St. John's-based um, festival that's we have a partnership with, so they'll be bringing some cool St. John's acts out to the lodge. March 11th is the Craft Beer Cabin Party St. Paddy's Day I don't know how we did it but we locked in Shanigan for Paddy's Day proper here at Marble so that's going to be a fantastic time and uh, a few other things we've got the Marble Mountain Fat Bike Festival it's the first of its kind event over here where we're going to be allowing and encouraging fat bikes to ride around on our mountain and of course Atlantic Canada's biggest snowmobile race the race on the rock is coming back for its 26th year on April 1st and 2nd this year
1: A lot to look forward to hopefully, the conditions uh, uh, accommodate all the big plans you've got. Uh, thanks for this morning, Dustin. I'll see you on the hill myself. My wife can't wait to get out
9: absolutely, we look forward to having you, thanks Patty
1: take care of yourself, bye bye that's Dustin Parsons, he's the marketing manager at Marble Mountain will I hit a break here Dave, I really don't know where I am okay, let's take a break, David Walsh appreciate your patience, talk about an event coming up for the NL Beekeepers Association and then we're speaking with you, don't go away welcome back to the show, let's go, line number three take a to the commercial director of the NL Beekeepers Association that's David Walsh, good morning David you're on the air oh good morning Patty, Yeah, uh, thanks for having me happy to have you on Uh, I just wanted to to bring up, I
10: guess, our workshop we're having next week, uh, January 19th to the 21st, at the Alt Hotel in St. John's. This is our annual workshop we're calling NLBCon 2023. But uh, what's special about this one is we're having in conjunction with the Canadian Honey Council and with the Canadian Association of Professional Apiculturists. Um, They're having their annual meetings here in St. John's uh, just before ours. And uh, this is a big deal because it's the first time ever that they've ever come to our province for their meetings. And it's kind of, I guess, putting us on the map, our our honeybee industry on the map a bit in Canada. Because we're, I don't know if you know, but we're quite small compared to other provinces in terms of producing honey. But uh, it's it's a big deal for us. So I just wanted to... uh, we got to, and it also brings uh, a lot of great speakers to our event because uh, there's a lot of uh, scientists and and whatnot coming to these meetings, and we're we're piggybacking on that and getting them to speak at our event as well. So it would be a great event for uh, anybody in the beekeeping if they want to attend um, next week january 19th 21st at Alt hotel
1: you know if you're in the industry and of course i've seen people reference it as fledgling but even though we've seen a lot of people come in as backyard beekeepers themselves so if i'm just an uh, a newbie or a novice in the industry or just simply want to find out more is this something for them as well
10: uh we do have a couple of um of talks there about uh, you know winterizing bees and stuff like that and uh so there, it, there is something there for everybody in this in this conference, yes, for sure. Uh, now, some of the talks will be at a bit higher level, but it's always good to, uh, you know, participate and stuff like that as well. Uh, We're we'll also do We'll also have a talk on marketing and various things we, we have in our workshop. So, so sounds anybody, good to me. Anybody guys thinking about uh, as a beekeeper now I'm thinking about going commercial for sure? Be uh, being a muster, or even just people that have interest in the industry.
1: Uh, Last one before we let you go, because I find it to be fascinating, and I know people who've gotten into the beekeeping and now they are all in. One of the controversial topics surrounding uh, the bee population here is importation. We have one of the healthiest bee populations on the face of the earth, which I'm sure not everybody or many people know about, so there's been some discussion about importation, even if there's going to be quarantines and, you know, protective measures put in place, I don't even know if there's any need to import bees here, but what's the status of that conversation?
10: well, um as an association we we've released a statement uh, with our position regarding importation, and uh we feel that we that it as long as it's done properly under a permit from the provincial government that it is acceptable because there's a lot of a lot of depth to that topic patty that people don't realize you just say, okay, just ban bees coming in." well, you know, what if we had a catastrophic event, a catastrophic winter that wiped out most of our population of Newfoundland bees? How are we going to rebuild that without importing bees like you're not? And and plus, people don't realize the Newfoundland bee is a product of years and years of bees being imported here. And, uh, you know, people like Wally Skinner who did a lot of work, you know, he you know, trying different queens and be bringing in the different types of bees and trying to get a bee that would survive Newfoundland winters and plus be productive. So without the importation, how are you going to, you know, diversify that as well, right? Bees are really uh, like can really be easily inbred, so uh, you need like to kind of mix up the DNA every once in a while to to keep keep them healthy as well. So it is really a health thing, and it can be done. You know, very very. Um, well, like, uh, like, lots of times uh, queens will be imported, or eggs will be imported. And an egg, I mean, it's hard to have a role mite right on an egg. So you would import the eggs, and then you would hatch them out here in Newfoundland, and go on and make queens out of them, or whatever you're going to do with them, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, fair enough. I, You know, there's two schools of thought on it. I'm not an expert on either school, so I just thought I'd ask. So, David, very quickly, the where's and the when's one more time for this upcoming conference, and what do people need to do if they want to attend? Do I need to pre-register? Do I have to pay? What's the story?
10: Yeah, you have to pre-register. Uh, just go to our website, com and it's at the Alt Hotel next week, the 19th to the 21st. And... um so that's i think we have a meet and greet with uh ian stepler he's a well-known youtuber in the honeybee industry he's from manitoba so we'll have him friday evening and then we have the main part of our workshop saturday and then uh and then the, the Sunday we do have a, a, our planning session for for our
1: association. Appreciate the time this morning, David. Good luck with it. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Bye bye. Cheers. Uh, David Walsh, commercial director of the NLB Keepers Association. Where should I go here now, David? Let's get one in for the break line two. Am I getting a thumbs up here from Dave? Uh, okay, I got a thumbs up. Good, lucky. Uh, line two, Brian, you're on the air.
11: Hello, Tali. Hi there. Uh, yeah, yeah, hold on. Uh, uh, speaker there a while ago talking about the uh, Newfoundland Senior Hockey League which brought a lot of memories back to me I was trying to phone you a few times but this morning I I did I grew up uh, following that league Uh, it was a fabulous league and it produced a a lot of good hockey players I know Frank Dorrington who was hated by St. John's fans, was a star for the Cornwall Royals. And homegrown, of course, you had Dougie Grant, who uh, was one of the best goaltenders ever to play. And talking about the, the Hockey League, St. John's had a six-team or uh, five-team St. John's Senior Hockey League. Uh, and, and they represented the schools, but they were grown-ups then. And uh, it was St. Pat's, St. Bon's, Holy Cross, the, the Thelians, And they they played for the ball trophy. And I remember uh, one year, I think it was back in the 60s, St. Pat's bet St. Bon's for the ball trophy. And Paddy, I know if, you, if you're all not to remember, that was nothing but a bloody war. St. Patrick's and St. Bob went at it, you know, and they won the cup, St. Patrick won the cup on the eve of St. Patrick's Day. And, of course, St. Patrick's Day was a holy day of obligation in those days for Catholics. And the next day, a lot of people who were forcing, and you'd wear on St. Patrick's Day uh, 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 something with gold and uh Gold and uh, green and the, it was so bad in the hockey that uh, a lot of fans of St. Bonds went to went to Madrid blue and gold and so I remember the, that senior hockey league great league, great gold great players you had uh, Merv Green and Gold for St. Bonds you had the Gillis brothers and uh, you know, in the Newfoundland Senior Hockey League, you had uh, you know a, a lot of great players. Uh, Doug uh, Gary Simmons out in out in Conception Bay went on to have a, a short uh, a short career there. So, of course, who can forget the Faulkner brothers? Just just really good. So, I'd like to thank that. Phoning a person that reminded you of the senior league brought a lot, brought a lot of memories back to me. That were, uh, you know, I was only a young fellow, but I always remember the the wars that were that were held between St John's and Corner Brook, or between St Pat's and St Bon's. So thanks a lot to that caller. Brought a lot of good memories back to me.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, as People who know me, I was absolutely a rink rat as a child, and probably still am. So, you know, I'll add into some other names from the 90s, because I riddled off some of the Caps imports, and I just heard from Graham Squire's mother. Of course, Graham was a standout defenseman for the St. John's Caps in that era. So, like, out in Corner Brook in the 80s, you had guys like Cranston and Danny Cormier and Tony Cuomo, Robbie Forbes. I mean, these were just something else for hockey players. They won an Alan Cup there, of course, in 1986, with the help of a couple of guys who were brought out from the Caps. Billy Breen was involved with that, so it was Tony Cuomo. Uh and uh, good to mention Billy Breen. Billy knows how big a slap shot I had. That's an inside joke that, that he'll get a kick out of. Uh, appreciate this, Brian. Anything else you'd like to say?
11: No, that's about it. Um, I usually talk about politics, but Nothing. politics don't bring, me back, don't bring me as much uh, uh, happiness as talking about the old-time hockey and baseball, because the same players who are great at baseball, the girls brothers were also great at baseball.
1: Yeah, I mean crossover. Well, hockey players are the best athletes. Let's just get that out there.
11: <laughs> oh, it's out there. <laughs> anyway, you no, know, thanks to all the players that brought me so much happiness growing up. Especially St. Pat's. Of course, I went to St. Pat's, and when we won the uh, ball trophy, the, bro- the head brother brought in the team for a big rally. So that was that was great. And uh, uh, a little a little known fact is that. Uh, a nickname for Saint uh, for Saint Pat's, they used to call it Jackie Withers and the Islanders, and they called them that because many of the Saint Pat's uh, players were came over from Belon and they played for us. That, that's a whole story to itself, Paddy.
1: Appreciate the time, Brian. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, there's some dandy old names. Let's see it go through this morning about, you know, some recognition for uh, this album, Grand Falls Windsor. Two of the lads from that town who went on to play pro, I think they were referring to uh, Tony White and to Danny House. And, of course, Danny would have come in and coached uh, some junior here in Mount Pearl when we were playing junior in the St. John's Junior Hockey League. All right, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. You're all there right after the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy
4: Lifestyle
2: Show
1: on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Where am I going? Let's see what Bruno's got to say on six. Bruno, you're on the air. Uh,
0: Good morning, Patty. How are you? Happy New Year. Same to you. Uh, First of all, uh, like a brief comment on your uh, meeting um, with the uh, Beekeepers Association this weekend. I would highly advise anyone interested in beekeeping in Newfoundland and Labrador to attend the meeting and to develop the skills in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, as much as possible without importation of any bees. Uh, The advice of your Department of Agriculture uh, will ultimately fail you. Uh, And learning how to individually how to raise and maintain your own bees and uh, having people trained in how to raise colonies that can restock your domestic supplies with queens at at least is very important I got driven out of beekeeping here in Cape Breton after about three decades after I had to learn all of the skills myself because the Department of Agriculture just told everyone, kill off all the bees in the fall, buy a new package in the spring and start again. And I found that so wantonly destructive and horrific that I had to learn all of the skills mainly through painful experiences on how to maintain my own bees how to get them through the winter, and I want to uh, tell anyone interested in keeping bees, the cold in Newfoundland and Labrador and in Cape Breton is no barrier to beekeeping. Uh, It's the moisture that gets at the hive that will kill them. So overwintering them is just a matter of keeping your bees warm and dry uh now um so please learn how to how to yourself develop the skills because as i said after 3 decades here in nova scotia because of the importation of several bee diseases it was no longer possible to look after bees in nova scotia without resorting to chemical beekeeping and uh, that, that meant poisoning your bees and, and possibly your honey, too. So I reluctantly had to give up beekeeping after three decades. So that's my rant on your beekeeping. Learn the skills yourselves and develop them there uh, to, to best. Um, protect uh, your beekeeping industry there as a domestic homegrown and uh, locally protected uh, industry. So that's enough of that.
1: Um,
0: I I wanted to also give some advice about uh, hitting uh, rocks uh, or nails in trees or rocks on the ground uh, with a chainsaw and um, there are several things. First of all, a lot, if not most, of the damage happens after you strike a rock. Uh, and you continue to use the saw, the teeth get ripped up and damaged uh, more than they need to be. So, first of all, the key as soon as you hit a nail or a rock, stop stop and deal with the issue immediately and if you're working in the woods uh, you don't have time to take your chain into the shop to get it repaired you've got to learn how to maintain it yourself and it's really very easy with a roller file guide which is a small gadget i don't know if you're familiar with it it fits on the chain and keeps your file at the right height and at the right angle. Uh, so you just drop this little file guide on one tooth after another and then you file it and it keeps everything at the right angle and uh, you you file until your teeth aren't damaged. And if you've stopped immediately after you've hit something, that's not hard to do. Uh, you've got to be able to maintain your chains by yourself uh, I mean you could carry extra chains which I'd probably advise to, but you can't be changing chains every
1: time you hit a rock you no of course not that. but now if you really badly damage a tooth where you simply cannot file the imperfection out in full it eventually has a, a negative impact on the tension of the chain where you might find yourself having a bucked chain so in addition to sharpening tools and awareness attention you know it's never a bad idea to have the proper protection on your ears, your eyes, and some chainsaw, whether it be chaps or otherwise because a buck chain is nothing to fool around with.
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, the helmet and the pants uh, are, are essential. And the boots, Uh, are all essential gear. That uh, goes without saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's proper steel toe boots, proper uh, chainsaw, protective chaps. They'll cover all the way down the laces, so it's really just the toe you need to be worried about. And, of course, there's all sorts of things regarding... Not sure what that is. There's all sorts of things regarding, you know, the placement of the saw in proximity to your face and the stance that you use. Some people are very willy nilly when they take out a chainsaw because it is a potentially dangerous tool. Very helpful, uh, but it can get away from you in a hurry. So, you know, there's lots of things to consider when you break out the saw.
0: It's a terrifying tool, and I think people uh, uh, treat it much too lightly, as you say. And uh, one of the main things is you've got to keep. Your feet in a strong position, two feet on the ground in a strong position. And as you say, keep this saw away from your face as much as possible
1: yeah you saw down not across or up and you know even when you see and I only because I spent a couple of full winters in the bush working chainsaw all day every day that's all we did is you know when you're trying to prop or to secure uh, a piece of wood with your foot to cut on the other side of say you got it against a log or across a rock or whatever man that scares me when I see people going at that because the power of the saw compared to what might be the lightly light pressure of your foot there's simply no match so you got to yeah. figure out some pretty safe ways to go at it because i've seen a buck uh, bucked chain and if my buddy who i was working with in the bush that day did not have on the chaps that we wore every day it would ripped them apart because yeah. these were these were big industrial saws i think we were running like uh 24 inch deals and they had a big sharp wicked moving fast chain so it can all go sideways in a jiffy i uh, appreciate the time we're not going to squeeze one on before the break but you have a nice weekend you too. Take care. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go. Who wants to go to a charity ball? Ben Oates wants you to go. He's at Memorial University's Engineering Department. Uh, good morning, Ben. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. How you doing?
12: Good, thanks. Good. Uh, thanks for the chance to call in.
1: Uh, happy to do it. I think I recall your notes somewhat uh, correctly. With We're talking about a charity ball coming up to support the ANC, right?
12: That's correct. So, yeah, we've done a charity ball uh, in support of the ANC, Association for New Canadians, and we're also going to split the money
1: two ways. Half of it's going to the ANC and the other half's going to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Two good spots. So what happens at your charity ball? So the charity ball is we're kind of
12: organizing it to be a kind of a meet and greet, and a social. It's uh, also going to be a three-course dinner, live auction, dessert auction, live music, uh, a bar, the whole works. And it's up at the uh, Signal Hill campus of Munn. So we've got a nice view of the city, and we're kind of hoping that people
1: will come out and have a look. So, look, I've haven't been involved in these type of events many times over the years. It is not simple. There's a lot of moving parts. It takes a lot of horsepower to do it right. So, is this all student led, or do you bring in an actual professional organizer? How does that setup work?
12: So this is student led, uh, but this is the 15th annual charity ball. So we've got uh, <laughs> we've got a good record of all the mistakes that were made in years previous. So we can kind of build on those student-led, and I'm going to give a hat off to uh, Kathleen Kern. She's the team lead on this, and she's doing a great job, and we've all been kind of putting our work in and getting this all together, and it should be a really good, uh, well-done event. Uh, we've got a caterer. we got, you know, the whole nine yards, so it should be good.
1: You know, with the not-for-profits and charities, whether it be independent groups like MUN Engineering Department try to raise money for the ANC and the C- CMHA, there's tough times out there it's a bit tight how are ticket sales going because it becomes a pretty tricky piece of business
12: absolutely uh, ticket sales are a little bit slow and we recognize that that's because you know it is it is hard times um, you know we're gearing this event towards students but also to professionals and people who are just looking for a good night out um, understand that it's definitely tight times. Understand that a lot of people are in a lot of tough times and we are looking at, you know, maybe we'll have to readdress this 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 um event for next year. We already had this planning, we've been planning this for about a year now, so we couldn't really take it off course and we still wanted to raise some money in support of these two charities, but we are definitely keeping that in mind because, you know, times are tight, inflation's high, you know. I know you know all about it and I know you've heard all about it on this show so I don't need to explain it
1: <laughs> no but it's important because you know we want them to be successful the charities of choice are solid and the effort really does deserve a positive outcome here for attendance and consequently the amount of revenue and money is raised so are, do you have a sponsorship component too because sometimes that's a, a, a surefire way to backstop what might be disappointing ticket sales
12: yeah so we, we, we've we've actually had some good success with some uh, with sponsorships so oh, good um, Half of it's corporate sponsorship, so we've been reaching out to local companies. Uh, you know, any business that operates in the St. John's or Newfoundland area, and even some that are outside. And we've got a lot of good feedback. Company like uh, Misa has given us some. Like, you know, think of some local companies. You got Misa, Suncor. I wish I had a list in front of me, but I don't. Um, you know, all these local companies who, are willing to ch- or who have chipped in and all that stuff. So we're, we're really grateful to them. We're also still in the process of getting auction items for our live and silent auction. So if a local business is listening here, you've got a couple little goodies, doesn't have anything big, and you're willing to chip in, um, I'll give my email today where I can put it out here and you guys can give us a ring and we'd be more than happy for any support, even if it's just $5 or $2. doesn't matter. Anything helps. Fire away. Uh, so my email is uh, B T Oates, B T O A T E S one at Gmail dot com. Uh, and so if you're a local business, you got something you want to help out, uh, feel free to give me a ring and uh, be more we'd be more than grateful to you.
1: Sounds like your email address is a bit of a tribute to Randy Bachman.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry I haven't
1: heard that one before. Couldn't resist. Uh, you've heard that many times I'm assuming, right? Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty lame. Um, A bit of an aside from the charity ball is what's the conversation looking like and sounding like amongst your uh, fellow engineering students? Well, there's a bit of uncertainty coming this month with whether or not there's going to be some job action or who knows what, or do you even care to talk about that today?
12: Yeah, I'll get into that a bit uh, if it's all right. So with Engineering Society, we are separate to the student union and the faculty association. Our job is to represent engineering students specifically. But you know, our position on this is that we understand that the job action is important. We also understand that the province and the university is broke. So you know, two sides of the story. I I think the main point here is that we all students, all that we're talking about is that we really, really, really don't want them to go on strike because I know there'll be a disproportionate impact on us. I don't know if people know about this, but money engineering is currently under an accreditation review, which is a normal process done by engineers, candidates, not trying to be alarmist or anything like that. But there's a component of that where they have to ensure the integrity of our engineering program. And if there's just if drag, excuse me, if the strike drags on for a long time, we're kind of thinking, worst case scenario, there could be some you know, we could be negatively impacted as engineering students. So we honestly don't know what's gonna happen. I know faculty associations being vague. I know they have to be vague what's going on because that's how unions and strikes work. But we're kinda of hoping that they can sit down and hash out a deal. And, you know, that's to both sides. That's to the faculty association and the student and the uh, and the university itself. So
1: yeah, because I have a university students at home and everyone's kind of just kind of waiting and watching and not really knowing what to anticipate. I think there's probably going to be some job action. I don't think it's going to be extensive. I know the government will be under distinct pressure because MUN says, look, we only have the money we have. And the allocation of 2% a year versus the 8% that the MUNFA uh, reps are looking for is a... Uh, is a massive cap. So remains to be seen, but I think we'll see something. But I hope it doesn't last very long and have that type of long-term impact on your association, your department, your Society B, or the other students at Mont. Good to have you on, Ben. Good luck with the charity ball.
12: Thanks, Prattie. Appreciate it. And if I could just give a quick bit of information on tickets. uh, Sure, please. If you want to do that. So uh, we're doing this event through Eventbrite. Most times they're done through paper tickets, but we're uh, moving in the 21st century. So if people are interested, you can go to eventbrite.com. Might be.ca actually. Shoot. Okay, well, one of them. And then search in uh, Charity Ball. Uh, it, it the website knows your geolocation and you go it'll just pop up this should be the first one there. It's Money Engineering's fifteenth annual charity ball.
1: Yeah, it's eventbrite.ca. Awesome. You're all set. Thanks, Ben take care buddy all the best pal bye-bye all right right, uh break time when we come back we're going to be talking with uh adam baker about vertical farming and sarah hedrickson her mother lives out in the outer battery and i'm sure this is a conversation about the bright security lights don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number five adam you're on the air good morning how are you i'm very well thanks for asking how you doing
4: Fine, thanks. Got so, uh, yeah, Patty, I was interested yesterday to listen to the discussion by uh, Scott Neary, uh, the fellow with um, Green Farming and now the vertical farming. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly food security is uh, an important public policy issue in the province. And, you know, I agree with him, you know, that it's too bad that that canopy growth facility uh, near White Hills is sitting idle. I mean, it's a beautiful new building. Um, and, it, and, you know, it probably could be taken advantage of, right? And now... <laughs> I know our past experience in Newfoundland with large-scale hydroponics um, demonstrated the importance of making sure that the business case makes sense. But um, you know, there's a number of public policy issues in the province that are in play here. There's food security, but there's also land use, as well as energy costs. I mean, hydroponics—one of the big inputs—is uh, you know energy, uh, electricity, and then there's jobs and economic development, right? And so you know, just listening to them, one of the things that, you know, brought to mind for me is is I've, I've, you know, I grew up in central Newfoundland. I've been living for a long time in western Newfoundland and something that I've been personally concerned about for a long time now is what looks like to me, the loss of large areas of arable land to other uses, residential development, commercial development, suburban development. And, you know, I realized that lots of times that's what makes sense for individual landowners but I think that there might be potentially a failure of public policy there to address that issue especially because despite the fact we have a big province, Newfoundland and Labrador is a large, uh, you know, it's a large area we don't have a whole lot of arable land right and so I agreed with what he was saying about the potential for the province to have a look at other alternatives to traditional farming especially in terms of their funding models and the types of activity that they want to encourage and um, you know, it's a reality that we don't have, you know, a lot of arable land, and, um, you know, I think the province should be open to alternatives to traditional farming models. And one of the other things I just, you know, I thought about when I was listening to him was I took notice of another Canadian startup, which is in early stages, um, which is doing vertical farming as well. But in addition to, you know, going above ground, what they do is they do in-ground. So they do uh, sort of in-ground
1: wells. Is that Green Forges? Is green forges, yeah. Okay, because I heard from one of the representatives yesterday on the heels of Mr. Neri's chat. Oh, he, perfect. Yeah, and yeah. I invited yeah. them on because, you know, I, I think more and more of these conversations may me to lead to more and more traction, and maybe government, like Scott Neri said, is you know, there's bureaucratic hurdles that seem unnecessary when we have all put a premium on food production, and, we're, and of course with food insecurity, that, you know, government has to wrap their mind around that. We understand traditional farming, but traditional farming should only be part of the conversation. The the, the comment about the lack of arable land, uh, maybe so, but certainly a lack of arable land in close proximity to larger communities, because that has a lot to do with being able to staff up, proximity to market, the cost for distribution. So there's a lot to that as well.
4: Oh, yeah, I agree. And, of course, one of the challenges with arable land, when you use it for something else, you can't get it back. Not really, right? I mean, so once you build a house on, on what was a farmland or a subdivision, you know, it, it's never going to be a farm again, um, not in a traditional sense. Um, but, uh, you know, I loved the idea. I saw the Greenforges company and, and for a place like Newfoundland, I mean, we're not in any kind of earthquake zone. You can do it small scale or larger scale. I mean, it did. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a great, it has great potential. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that they called in.
1: Well, no, they haven't called. They simply emailed. I didn't on the mom because oh, I think I more know. and more of these types of chats can only be informative and potentially helpful for individuals. People might have a business model in mind and see what the hurdles were and how they were overcome and the ability to scale and the ability to move from simply revenue to profit. So there's a lot more to this. And then, of course, you add in this is not unknown technology. And hopefully, the sprung hangover doesn't influence anybody's thoughts on the matter and or the, or the roadmap to... Expanding the footprint of hydroponics. I mean, just look at Iron. I think it was the Iron Works or Iron East, and their greenhouse over at the Lane Dobbins Centre for Autism. So we've got it peppered around Green Forges, Green Farm and L, and another couple of that I've been told about. So between traditional organic farming, like Mark Wilson and them, bringing more and more of these advanced technology farms to the landscape of food production here, they all have to work hand in glove because they all make sense in their own in their own realm.
4: Well, I agree, and so I, that's all I really wanted to say was I you know, wanted to call in support of what Mr.
1: Neary was saying. Yeah, I thought he was great, very informative. Yeah, so Patty, uh, you know, have a great day. The very same to you, Adam. Thanks for the call. Okay, sir. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Now, the government will tell you that they have hit some of their targets in doubling food production for a couple of different crops, but we are in no position to rest on our laurels regardless if we fit one target or another. Some of the numbers are a little bit misleading, like the old 90-10. We produce 10% of what we consume, which I think is more a number directly related to uh, large retailers. Grocery store chains, for instance, because we don't have all of the data included in those end result numbers. For instance, Scott Neri says that his operation is not only not part of the conversation, but isn't part of the data. Then you move off to, and I think it's important to incorporate it all, whether it be the amount of produce and product uh, that's produced in a backyard farm. Because it all is food, is food, is food. We shouldn't just simply rely on what comes across an ocean, ex-marine, Atlantic to do the evaluation or the, the traditional farms that we understand and we've lost so many of them, which is also very scary. But, you know, backyard farming, homesteading, Small operations, green farm, green forges, iron east or iron works. I can't remember the proper title for that greenhouse over at the Elaine Dobbins Center, who's, who very recently had a birthday. Happy birthday to you, Elaine. So let's make sure we do a better job in the compilation of data, which paints very clearer, very much so a clearer picture of where we are and where we need to be. But even if we've hit a couple of doubling targets, we've got a forge ahead quickly uh, let's take a break when we come back I see Sarah is back in the queue to talk about the outer battery related matter and then Catherine Dempsey she's a beekeeper we've spoken to Catherine on the program in the past she'd like to respond to David Walsh from the NLB Keepers Association I assume this is about the importation of bee conversation and then we will speak with you don't go away your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM welcome back to the show let's go to line number seven Catherine Dempsey you're on the air
13: Oh, hello there, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Um, Dave, um, Dave Walsh. From uh, whose beekeeper over on the west coast, and was talking about the conference that's coming up. And then you asked a question again about importation. Well, one of the and then, but what was really important was that the guy who came on from Cape Breton just after that and talked about um, his experiences and how important it was to learn about how to become self-sufficient in your beekeeping and how to be able to keep your bees alive. So I just wanted to come on to say that an awful lot of the topics in our um, workshop on um, the 20th, the 19th and the 20th in particular, and then the 21st are about that exact thing. So they're topics like, um, uh, let me just uh, see here, spring protein feeding um, with someone who's been involved. She's one of the professional apiculturalists in the country, uh, Shelley Hoover. Um, there's uh uh, session on, um, uh, how to read your bee's knees, needs, sorry, not your bee's knees, your bee, bee's needs, and so that you can make sure you give them the right thing. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, and get a report from a woman in Australia about the status right now of varroa mites in uh, New South Wales, which they got in there this year, which is really um, a shame. So they're still clean over on the west coast of Australia, but not on the east. And so um, all of the topics are going to help both the small-scale beekeeper as well as the commercials. And that's important because although we've got, we're starting to get a commercial beekeeping uh, uh, group in the province, you know, we're, we're growing, but um, there's an awful lot of people who have um, only a few hives, but they have to take care of them just as well as the, as the bigger players. So I just wanted to say that Dave did a good job of explaining that but um, that there were specific topics and uh, that people should know about that if they're thinking about whether to come or not. So fair,
1: fair enough. I, I do think, and maybe this is unfair, but I'm going to say it anyway, is, you know, sometimes when we have conversations about beekeeping, some people might think it's simply based on the hobby for some beekeeper. Some people think it might be just on the production of honey. But a healthy bee population is so much bigger conversation than that. Now, I know that maybe sometimes people's minds just go to those two easy ones to go to, but when we see the implications of an unhealthy bee population and whatever mites might be plaguing bee populations in certain countries or continents, the results are catastrophic.
13: Oh, they are. They absolutely are. And it's why it has to take ongoing conversation, and more than that, it takes ongoing action. And the Beekeeping Association, um, back even during COVID, we had a workshop uh, that traveled across the province building a one uh, a plan, a Varroa Action Plan for protection of the bees. It's been peer-reviewed. Um, it'll be discussed at the meeting. And the next steps that have to come out of that are how do we all work together to uh, keep our bees clean? And so it has to be an ongoing thing. But there's another side to that, and it's something that will be addressed with one presentation here, and and that is There's native bees. When we talk about saving the bees, honeybees reproduce at an incredibly fast rate. But native bees only reproduce uh, a couple of hundred bees and they travel, live in a very small area, and they're often uh, have evolved along with the plants that are in their area. So the real threat right now in the world is to native bee populations that are um, affected by climate change and by habitat change and by people over you know monocultures are a, are a big thing too so there's a whole batch of things that affect overall bee populations Um, and you know we got 85 or so species of bees here in newfoundland we've got other pollinators too but and everybody does their own part of the job really well and by everybody i'm talking bees Um, does their part of their job um, in a specific way there's certain bees that are really good for cranberries or blueberries because their little tongues are longer than our honeybees tongues but um, honeybees There's so many of them that they can do a good job on pollination services. So um, it is, you're absolutely right. It's an absolutely huge topic with many, many uh, aspects to it. Um, just like with climate change or or with the population of the codfish, you know, there's not just one thing to, to blame or to pay attention to. We've got to look at everything as we go. So um, I'm really looking forward to next weekend. That's all I can say.
1: I'm sure you are, Catherine. Appreciate your time as usual.
13: Okay. And uh, you have a good rest of the day.
1: The very same to you. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Sarah Hedrickson. You're on the air.
14: Hi, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call.
1: Happy to do so. Uh-
14: Thanks. Um, My purpose today for this call is not to get in. It is to talk about the lighting issue down in the outer battery. Um, I'm not going to get into all the technical sides because a lot of it's probably over my head anyhow, but I want to talk to the um, human side of this all. And um, before I do so, a couple of days ago, I know um, somebody had emailed wondering why the lights were there, and I'm not sure if that was ever answered or not. Do you know if it was answered why that the neighbor has the lights up in the first place, the security ones?
1: Well, I don't know if there's a one definitive answer as to why. I've seen a couple of different uh, issues float around, illuminating a trailhead safety and security. So I don't know, but at this point, I think with the involvement of law enforcement, the frustration of the residents, the inaction at the city council, I think we've just found ourselves at a loggerhead. So the reasons I think are now gone by the wayside. There's all sorts of things you can do, like even if it was just on maybe uh, a motion sensor so that it wouldn't be constant. So I don't know. I think we just have an obstinate position taken on both sides here now where there's not going to be any move until there's either, A, a bylaw, or we'll see what the results are of the criminal charges.
14: Right. Okay. So, um, you know, my understanding is for security and there is video on the Outer Battery Facebook page that actually shows somebody walking and illustrates that the lights for security on his property are actually not even on his property. And I can speak to this because it's actually mainly affecting my mother, who is a resident of the battery and who the lights are shining directly into her home. And um, back in the summer, unfortunately, my stepfather passed away. And during that time, he, you know, wanted to stay at home. Sorry for my emotion. Um, he wanted to stay at home um, as long as possible. And while this is going on, you know, while he's, he's dying at home, they're dealing with this issue. And, of course, the issue of the lights was long before... Um, my stepfather's um, passing but this is what they're dealing with and in fact the night that my stepfather passed away my sister was home um, visiting and supporting the family and um, that night she went um, to my mother's place and she saw you know firsthand these lights in the middle of the night and how um, obnoxious they were. So I just want to talk about the human side of it because, you know, again, whatever the lumens are, whatever the bylaws are, um, there's a human side to all this. And in my experience, there's, there's many people impacted by this and I'm sure there's other areas of town that are impacted. All I can speak to is the story that I know. And that is that, you know, this is a woman who was, you know, her husband was dying. She she can't even properly mourn her husband, I I imagine, because of the energy that this is taking up. And um, over the summer, you know, there was a post that she had, and and it's the middle of the night, the lights are shining in, and the one thing that her and her um, husband have is their passion for the ocean. They've always been on the sea from their um, hobbies and their livelihoods, and they chose the outer battery because of its connection to the ocean. And here she can't even look out the window to properly grieve or feel connected to her husband who passed because of these these lights and I contacted the um, the city back in August after I saw that I was so mad and I, I sent it to four people in particular, only one had contacted had replied back and acknowledged my email um, and again yesterday after reading the comments on VOCM, I was infuriated and um, when I read the article from you know, Mayor Breen and his comments, and I replied to the same four people and you know, not surprising. Nobody's contacted me, but I, I just—I don't. What I don't understand is there's so much in this world that is so um, that requires our attention, and there's so many bigger problems out there that all the human resources and the energy put into this, when all this person has to do is turn off the lights. I mean, you know, we all have neighbors. I'd be mortified if I had, like, you know, patio lights on and it bothered somebody. If they asked me to take it down, I would. So my question is, why, and if he's listening, why can you not do the right thing and take the lights down? Or as you suggested, Patty, have a motion sensor on them, and then that way you are covered by security. Like, clearly it's not for the purpose. It's, in, in my opinion, as I see it, it seems like it's, it's just to bother people unnecessarily. And You know, these are people that are just trying to live their life. Like I said, you know, she's not unique in that she has challenges in her life. Everybody has challenges. I can only speak to our story. I know that after her husband passed away, um, my son was actually in the hospital for 10 weeks. And every day, my mother was there so that my son's father and I could work, ironically, to, you know, provide for our families, to support the community, to go into restaurants and bars and shops and shop local and spend money. She's there to support us. And allow us to do that while we're caring for our son, but yet she's got this worry. She can't sleep at night. She's trying, you know. She, her husband passed away. Her son is is not well, and she she's got to deal with something that's so foolish when her energy should be spent on other things. As many other people as all these callers in, you know? like imagine if if all the counselors could spend time not fielding these questions or this call and just put an end to it you know I've heard that they actually can do something they're just choosing not to do something but it's just it's so maddening to see that a community such as the outer battery you know last year when a neighbor got sick it was my mother who took her to her appointments it was then it was the neighborhood that gathered outside of the Miller Center and sang Christmas carols because she wasn't home for her first Christmas like these are good kind people that just want to live their life and contribute to the city and the fact that so much is wasted, I, I don't understand. And that's my question. Who does that? Like, why is so much you know energy wasted? Just turn off the lights, put on other measures. It's, it's not necessary. Patty, I believe you said you've been down there. I've heard Anthony jamaine has been down there. Like, unbiased adults with common sense know that this is not right. So I just ask, where's the human decency side of all this? Where's the common sense? just stop it and let's move on and and put our energy into more important issues. I mean, there's so many fights in this world. Why are we fighting this silly, which is not silly, but this issue?
1: It's a fair question. Even if there was some air of compromise with reducing the brightness level, the luminescence of these wicked bright lights, what I think is going to become part of the argument made, too, is if someone can attach some validity to the fact that we have a working harbor, navigation of vessels, and any interruption to their safe passage as they approach the narrows, is something I think you're going to see bleed into this argument that people are going to make, too. Not just about my circadian sleep patterns and the annoyance and the frustration and the standoff, I think there's going to be a bit more to the legalese of all this before it's all said and done, even though, again, to your point, we're going way down a road over something as fundamental. You said silly, and I know exactly what you meant by that. Something as uh, negotiable and as uh, resolved that's there, if anyone cares to take it. But, boy, the standoffs sometimes are just mind-numbing. Uh, Sarah, I appreciate your time. I'm sorry to hear about your loss.
14: Thank you very much, Patty.
1: Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye bye. Final break of the morning. Final break of the week. Barry's there to talk about a registration fee for small tractors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Barry, you're on the air.
3: Thank you for taking my call. I'm, I'm a first time caller. Welcome to the show. I for over a year now I've been calling different government departments and things about uh, outrageous registration fee for for my small tractor. It's only a little tractor a uh, 20.9 horsepower. And it's it's legal to put on the road and it, it needs to have a license plate and, uh, and insurance in order to obtain the license plate. So the insurance, I went and I purchased the insurance. The insurance is, uh, cost me, it's, it's personal use insurance. It costs me $184 a year. But for the plate, it's 230 Oof. And I only use it as a little tractor for clearing snow around my place. I'm a senior citizen. I'm, I'm 68 years old. Uh one time, I could get out with a snow scoop and do the work, and then uh, I graduated from that to a ATV with a plough. And now, I, now I'd like to have a little more comfort. And my income is a number of small pensions, which includes... Guaranteed income supplement. So, income is roughly well less than $21,000 a year. Right. And I'm living alone, and uh, I got a house to maintain and everything else. And I needed to go up the road like half a dozen times, about a quarter of a kilometre on a 30 kilometre speed limit road in the community. When I take part in the food fishery to arm my boat trailer up and, and, and put the boat out in the water, and uh, sometimes there be a bit of damage from the winter storms that I needs to fix up to, for the back down the beach, which is not very much. In a year, I put 55 hours on the tractor, and most of that is on my own property. I'd say 98% of it is on my own property. I drove probably in the year. I did pay the registration fee one year, but it's expired since uh, since September, last of September, and in the year I probably drove a total of less than 10 kilometers on the road. And between the license and the insurance, it cost me over $40 a kilometer for the times I was on the
1: road. Yikes! So, how has the cost changed over the years, or is this something new to you, Barry? This is not new. This is new to me. Okay. I,
3: I, I, I I'm living on, on a fixed income, and a very small income. Uh, but I did come into a bit of money. I had an antique truck that my son sent home from the, from Alberta, to me for a few, a few years ago. I sold it, and I decided rather than just pick away at the money to supplement my income, I would put it into something that would make my life a little bit easier. And that's what I did with it. Because if I if I use the money to supplement my income, when that disappears, I'm still in the same situation. Mm-hmm. So I wrote uh, I wrote a letter to. Copy went to the premier. It went to the finance minister. Went to service, the government service minister, and and went to the opposition parties. A copy went to you in the, in the form of email. It was uh, it was done on the twenty first of November. Outlining all that I'm after, telling you now. And I got I got a letter back from the finance minister, and basically all it was was uh, telling me about all the government is doing for seniors. And and I made the comparison between the those cost of living allowances that they're paying out to two people with up to a hundred thousand dollars living in a house. We got one lot of expenses for the run of the household. Gets a thousand dollars, and someone like me gets five hundred. I made the comparison there, and I got a letter back saying, "Well, it's not uh, our department; it was Service NL." So he sent it to Service NL. I got a letter from Service NL, and he told me the, the letter says the reason why that uh, the the tractor costs us so much all heavy equipment, and uh, they got this classified as heavy equipment. All vehicles, all vehicle registration fees are determined based on the type of vehicle it's use as assigned by the vehicle manufacturer and in consideration of the vehicle's impact on the provincial infrastructure. No, what impact for the little bit of use my little dinky tractor got on the provincial infrastructure is beyond me to imagine it.
1: Yeah, basically nothing as per the usage that you report off property versus on. Uh, Barry, I'm going to have to dig into this a little bit further. I was unaware it was extraordinarily expensive, like you talk about, for that little, small, 20, I think it's said 29 horsepower 20 tractor. 20.9. 20. 20.9. 20. You've had and the last word, Barry, as a first-time caller. I appreciate the time. I'll have a look at it.
3: Yes, and and, and there's there's more I'd like to say on that, because I, I spoke to the registrar Uh Yesterday, too. Well, i tell you what. I've got no satisfaction with anyone.
1: If you'd like to join us again next week to elaborate uh, further, you're more than welcome. Well, I may do that. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Good show today. Good shows all week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.